Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I am your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Say hi, Marie. Hi, Marie. Hilarious. Wow. Quality comedy today. And we are here with the folks over from Rumor Flies, a phenomenal podcast on the Dark Myths Network. Uh, Guys, you want to say hello? Hello. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Wonderful. What an intro. This episode, we're going to talk about the myths and the pseudoscience that come about in basically stories of true crime pretty much so we have a whole mix of different things for you here and we hope you enjoy it and if you enjoy this episode go over and take a listen to the rumor flies guys and it's going to be great so here we are with the mad scientist podcast slash rumor flies mega super crossover welcome to the mad scientist podcast today's episode Rumor Flies Crossover! Now that we have validity added to our, like, you know, uh, some street cred added to this episode because science, uh, Josh, do you want to talk about what we're going to be covering today? Yeah, today we're going to be talking about forensics specifically, like different myths that surround it. Things like, um, well, I mean, we'll, we'll, well, actually, I'll hold on to what the topics are. But it's a lot of things that you've seen in like common TV tropes, movies, things like that. Um, and we figured that Chris and the Mad Scientist podcast would be the perfect people to talk about all of this. Um, it kind of puts Greg, you know, me and Greg at a disadvantage because we're not the sciencey type like Ryan and Chris are. So um, I have another science foe to deal with on uh, my everyday <laughs> life. So we'll see how this goes. Well, I've been like, <laughs> I've been dying for this episode, not only because of Chris and Marie, but because... I, I've said this before, I wanted to be a forensic chemist. The only problem is, is that I could make more money being a waiter at just about any restaurant around here than being a forensic chemist for that's the true. city here. Yes. It's terrible. Um, that's one thing we can jump into as for why that there are, there are so many uh, crazy myths and some of them a little bit more valid than the others, but at least dumbed down myths about forensic chemistry or general forensic science or investigations. And we're going to try to cover a wide breadth of it. Uh, we're going to be just going back and forth between mad scientists and rumor flies talking about different topics that we find interesting. Uh, but as a little primer, we're going to get the big ones out the way is that we've seen all these shows, CSI, we've seen, uh, what criminal minds we've seen yeah, law and order, law and order, all that other shit. Take yeah. your pick. We have tons of them. The first deal is that <laughs> the thing you see in these shows is that it takes a lot of time. It takes like no time for them to get, you know, uh, a sample out or anything well, like that. Let's actually be fair. The first thing you, you, these shows tell you is that there's semen on everything. Yes, yes. yes that's yes, 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 yes. Oh, all one. over the place. That's number one. And then number two, it takes no Well, time. it happens all at port side cities, so it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That more semen, more criminals. <laughs> yeah. But so, <laughs> so number one, just for most cases, if it's a nonviolent case, it takes 30 to 60 days to even open the case. Of course, in most of those TV shows, it's a violent case. They rarely, they rarely ever bust a drug dealer, like or unless he murdered somebody too. Well, I was going to say he has to murder somebody first. So yeah. the long arm of the law is a very slow swinging arm. But also, let's go with one big thing. We're going to get to DNA later, and I'm very excited for that. But first off, I Nerd. just want to start with DNA tests take nearly at least fifty hours to do, and this is something that I actually did testing for. I. Uh, tested for GMOs in corn and soybeans. So they weren't murdering anybody, but they were potentially in a product that GMOs weren't supposed to be in. I'm not going to get into that. It's for another day. 
it, that will set me off. But we have a no powder keg policy here, and we're really trying to stay to it. But Aww. it takes a long time. Secondly, we're going to go ahead and go to the next thing that's, I'm sure, going to come up on both the mad scientists. They haven't told us anything about what they're covering just yet. Uh, they told us the wide topics, but not the details. And the same, as always, for me and Josh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is the element of human error in forensic science. No, I'm never wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and one thing, uh, most scientists don't know where their sample is coming from, even if it's a, ho- a high-profile case. It, they just treat it just like all the others. It's... Uh, it's the it's keeping to a standard of blindness, so there's no preference added to a case or no bias added to it. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's going to be a reoccurring theme in one of my topics. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, most crime labs for the state or for like smaller counties are so overwhelmed they sometimes outsource to private companies, and sometimes mm. they don't have the best standards. It's yeah. the way it, you, it, it it's just that way goes to the lowest bidder. Um, <laughs> one story, I have an example for that. I'm not going to say which crime lab this is, but when I was working uh, at my old job, one of the technicians for the instrumentation also worked for the crime lab. And what he said was that he went to a certain parish or county for the entire rest of the world or United States. Uh, had a, they went to a crime lab to do some uh, maintenance work on an instrument. And when he went to go sit down, he's like, oh, yeah, just go sit on those boxes over there. That's one of the techs said to him. He did, and a big, like, puff of, like, dust came up. Turns out that dust was actually cocaine. That shows how good their chain of command is and how much they actually, like, uh, Jesus. respect their samples. And they had a yeah. wonderful party after. Well, I was going to say, that's just one place that I know of. Stuff done. Yeah, so... <laughs> There's a whole issue with training, too, but uh, and I just want to cite these two cases, and this shouldn't scare everybody. Number one, forensic science has come a long way in the past even 20 years. It's gotten tremendously oh, yeah. better, but there are still shortcomings, and we're going to cover those. But uh, there's also, in the human error, uh, in Massachusetts in 2013, 2014, these are the most prominent things that have come up in the news. People may have heard of this. Uh, in 2013, Massachusetts, one chemist was found to have mishandled over 60,000 drug samples, which affected over 24,000 different convictions. Not only that, the district attorneys for that case fought to reveal the affected cases so they could be extra, uh, expedited in the, in the court. Wait, how many, how many drug samples did it mishandle? About 60,000. Jesus. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just, yeah. It's, it just goes through like crazy. Turns out people like drugs, like a lot. But, you know. I mean, that's like, that's over 1,000 a week. Yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, how, that's how bad that is. Uh, yeah, so suppo- supposedly what she was doing too, because so when this happened, I was living in Massachusetts. I was in grad school. Oh, you were, and suppose. Oh, yeah, I was right. I was like right. So every morning I turned on the news and it was like you know this person. I don't think we're trying not to name her or whatever, but like you know this this uh, it was it came down to one researcher in the crime lab or one researcher in this lab who was like like it was something as simple as she was just kind of saying like. Yeah, there were drugs here because they had a past of of using drugs on a couple of cases. And so because of that, every single case that she had been part of was called into question. And like they're overturning cases like by the dozens every week. It's it's crazy. Yeah, that seems to be the same one I'm talking about. I, I just, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't add anything to me for me to say the name and who knows. Yeah, no, I, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm with you 100 percent. Yeah. But uh, Massachusetts, did you hear what happened in 2014? <laughs> No, maybe not. Another chemist, another chemist was convicted for stealing and using the drugs that came into the lab. Oh, my and God. <laughs> real noise. So this person apparently was doing all these samples high on whatever drugs that she was stealing. 
Well, yeah, so that to make sure the, they were really drugs. <laughs> so when somebody tells you that they have a degree in forensic science, don't look at them too highly like they're t- speaking from a pulpit. Don't they might too highly uh, no, set myself my up for that one. Uh, but essentially, they had to call into question once again every case she touched because she was potentially on drugs while doing it. However, I kind of trust her, um, I guess, analysis on the drugs because she was probably aiming for the best ones to take. Right. Like, I imagine right. she stole them after testing them. Right. She was like, hot damn, this guy's in so much trouble. Oh my God. <laughs> this is not tied. This is straight white horse. I'm taking it. Yeah, yeah. think about so, all the shit she had to uh, put up her nose to get to that point at that, you know, as well. It's like, it's not all good stuff. I mean, I'm sure she was sniffing like some tie like baby, baby powder. And she's like, God damn it. I'm going to be sober. Right. My nose the little known the sniff test for drugs before you run them through. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Oh God. So, um, anyway, we're going to go ahead and get into some specifics that you've seen in shows and in movies and all other sorts of media. And I think we're going to go ahead and let Mad Scientist start first. What you guys got? Yeah. So one really. So I it, it pains me to say this. At one time, I loved the show Dexter. I thought it was awesome. Right. Like I loved the first two seasons were so good. And the thing that really I mean, it was, yeah, no, it was Dexter was like really good for a little bit. And then it just went to, you know, freaking hell. But anyways, one be really cool movie, Dexter goes to hell. That would actually be a really cool movie. The <laughs> the cool thing about Dexter for me, or at least one of the coolest things when it first came out was this idea that he was a he did blood splatter analysis. Right. And yeah, I and so um, the high school that I went to, the the teacher I had for biology was actually a um, was actually had worked as a chemist in a crime lab for New York City for a number of years before she decided to go do uh, teaching in public schools. And so she taught a special course on forensic chemistry. And one of the cool labs that people got to do was you put a watermelon like in a clean room. Right. So you you'd put the, the white sheets up and everything, and then you'd strike the watermelon with different uh, things like an axe or a hammer or whatever. Oh, come on. This is so gal. That's a Gallagher brother. And so the idea was you would try to you would try to come up with, you know, the blood splatter analysis techniques to say, you know, if you were given a blind sample of this splatter was given from from some case, what tool do you think was used to make the splatter? Right. And so this idea of blood splatter analysis isn't really super popular in a lot of TV shows, but it comes up a lot because it becomes a really important tool for forensic uh, forensic researchers to really figure out what's going on. And so the reason that I love this is that it has a lot to do with fluid mechanics and fluid properties, something that I'm a big nerd about. So, for instance, when when you're analyzing blood splatter, what you kind of look for are a bunch of different things. So first off, if there are droplets around, usually droplets or so when a fluid flies through the air, it tends to form a droplet just because of surface tension. And so anytime you see blood splatter that looks like it's a sphere or it has a a rounded edge and then a a tail to it, that suggests that it was it was created not from like transfer of like a bloody handprint or something or a piece of clothing that suggested came from it flying through the air. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. And so on top of that, then when you have a droplet that is circular 
And then it has kind of what they call satellites. These um, kind of like the average blood splatter that you're thinking of, like a piece of a, a, a droplet of blood falls to the ground. It hits the ground and then smaller droplets come off of it. And so it makes this like there's a circular pattern and then there are kind of stars coming off the edge. Do you know what I mean? Almost like a sheriff star. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is coming from blood dropping straight down, right? And so it's dropping straight down. And actually, the size of the droplet can tell you a lot about how how high up the droplet must have fallen from, right? So yeah, that for makes instance, a lot of sense. I guess I was going to say. Yeah. yeah so uh, so so uh, long, a cannonball in a pool. Exactly. Exactly the same principle. So long as the droplet doesn't hit terminal velocity, which terminal velocity for people that don't know is the maximum speed a thing can reach in air falling just due to gravity. And so what happens is the thing's falling. Gravity is applying some force to it, some acceleration. And then you have wind resistance that comes up the other way to slow it down a little bit. And if you fall far enough, eventually you're going to hit a point where those two things will even out. And basically you'll just fall at a constant rate from then forward. You won't gain any more speed. Well, if you're falling from a really high up, the droplet you make is going to have much bigger, um, much, much bigger satellite droplets. Right. Because there's more force for it to hit the ground, just like the cannonball. Yeah, right, right, right. right. But the initial impact tends to be smaller. Because the droplet, as it falls, is being pushed by by the the wind resistance to make more of a trail in the air. Hmm. Right? Yeah, so I like, imagine terminal velocity is achieved much faster by a less massive object yeah. than a more massive object. Yes, C. yes, absolutely. So like, C, C. Baseball versus blood. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and so and there's all kinds of really interesting like physical interpretations of these things. So one other one is when. When blood is is caused by a like say a baseball bat hitting something, right? Let's not get too gory. A watermelon. A baseball bat hitting hitting a watermelon. We're in the right? forensics episode. Let's get this gory. Do what All you right. want, Chris. All right, fine. If a ba- like let's say a baseball bat hitting a head, right? There's going to be multiple different types of splatter that occur. There's going to be the splatter from the the bat actually hitting the head, and so. So, like, you can imagine the force of the bat hitting it and then causing blood to form. That blood will then be pushed by the force of the bat outward. Like a gusher, like squeezed forward towards the bat. Yeah, yeah, kind of like a gusher. That will have a different pattern than the pattern of the bat actually continuing to swing. Right. And so that's that splatter will be smaller droplets with a very well-defined head and then a tail right so you'll have a rounded head and then a very long tail and the length of the tail tells you something about the angle that the droplet hit the wall from right so there's all there's like it's real blood splatter analysis it turns out is is very very useful forensic information like way more useful than i thought it was um and i and i just found that completely fascinating you know and so one other one other really interesting piece of this that i thought was really cool that you never you wouldn't really think of is the the time it takes the blood to dry is also a really good indicator, obviously, of when the crime was committed. And you can also tell based on, say, like the viscosity of the blood or the color of the blood, where it came from in the body, most likely when it was caused. Um, so like, OK, you if if someone is already dead and then and then it's someone crazy, like crazily, um, ripping like them apart, stabbing and stabbing, and stabbing them. and whatever. 
Right, like someone who's in a, in a <laughs> right, like in a. Let's stick with that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, if if that is what's happening, then it's much more. Um, that blood will come out differently than if the blood is in a body where the blood is still flowing. Right, yeah, the ox- that, right there's dead blood. That's not living blood. Right, exactly. <laughs> like the oxygen <laughs> content will change the color and it'll change the 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 properties of the blood. And then on top of that, too, there are other really interesting things, like like things you'd never think of, like. Um, if an object has been moved in a room, like if, you know, I mean, it seems pretty obvious if you're in a room and a wall is covered in blood and there's like a, um, I don't know, a vase shaped missing piece of right. There's a vase shaped clean area and you can't find the vase. The first thing you're going to say is like, I wonder if they hit them in the head with a vase. It's right? the murder <laughs> weapon. Exactly. But even even something like that, like being able to tell from the angle of the blood, being able to tell from the shape of the blood, what happened, how many wounds there were, what kind of weapon was used. All of that is actually very valid science. So it's, it's so not, to get too ma- not to get too macabre, but the way you're putting it, it seems like um, aside from we're getting to, we're not trying to get too much into Josh's topics or my topics, but it's almost, it's like, it's almost a pre sweeping of the scene at some point where you can get stuff like fingerprints or outlines to how a murder happened just from the blood alone. Yeah, absolutely. You can you can tell you can tell a huge amount of initial information just from where the blood is lying. Right? You can tell like okay, this looks like it was, you know, if there's not a lot of blood then likely strangulation, right? If there's a lot of blood, likely blunt force trauma. If there seems to be um if there seems to be blood but it's in a very not ordered fashion, but it's not like all over the place. It's just kind of in a few select areas that might suggest something like a more accurate tool, right? Like a knife or something. So mm. it's, there's all kinds of very, very specific things you can get. And then on top of that too. So one thing I wanted to touch on is the use of luminol mm-hmm. for blood scene analysis, right? So that's something you Ooh, always see like on TV this. shows is okay. You, you, whatever, someone killed someone, they're, they've come down, they're kind of cooling off and they're like, oh my God, I need to hide this. And so they start, they start, you know, wiping things down and whatever. And then the next day, you know, uh, the person from SVU or whatever comes on and shoots the luminol and it starts to glow. Well, what's actually happening there in the luminol is um, the luminol is a chemical that will react with the iron in blood. And so that's why it glows is it's actually seeing the iron left over. And so I, I found that really interesting. Like if you knew the chemistry of blood, you could probably hide blood stains pretty well. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like you could put on a bacteria that eats iron yeah, yeah, or something yeah. like bleach and shit and other things. It picks up anything. A lot of things just besides blood. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a luminescent chemical that's reacting with um, an iron compound. Right. So, and like it can react with other compounds as well. So it's just really interesting. Like the, it's really interesting. The chemistry that we're using for this analysis that you you don't even think of, you know what I mean? So yeah, it's really cool. Well, one thing that's funny, Ryan and I both were like, I was sitting there thinking to myself about mentioning this and Ryan also starts typing on his phone and shows it to us. Um, You've seen the boondock saints, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. When he spray, they spray ammonia all over the blood. Is that accurate? I mean, because he, he comes out and um, Willem Dafoe's character is like, they used ammonia. None of this is any good. So it was a firefight. <laughs> that's actually a really good question. Um, 
Let me well, see. We're not trying to catch everyone with their pants down, but no, we're that's interested. What so yeah, it's a totally left out left field for the uh, mad scientists here. I mean, so, ammonia. Uh, we'll full disclosure. So I would think oh. I would think ammonia. What it would do is it would destroy DNA. Gotcha. Or it that would, would be a good sort point. of limits its usefulness. Yeah. So it wouldn't it wouldn't hide because ammonia wouldn't do anything to the iron. Like maybe it would convert the iron from the blood, like in the hemoglobin, it would convert it into maybe a nitrogen iron compound. Like maybe, but even then the top of your head, how did you do that? Yep. Oh, dude. (laughs) Sorry. Well, also iron based paint would be the only reason why iron would possibly be on a wall or something like that too. I just wanted to point that out. That was right. 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 Absolutely. Allow iron based paint. Well, like there's all lead based paint. But they do. Iron yeah. is used in a lot of red pigments. Yes, okay. they absolutely use iron-based. Like that's the thing. Well, that's, what, that's why I was asking. Or I mean, if you're in a, if you're in like, you know, I don't know, the murder is con- the murder is performed in like a body shop or something. You're gonna find iron mm-hmm. all over the damn place. I've you seen drive. I mean? like, oh my god, this car's been murdered. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> it's gonna be all over the place. So I wonder. Hey, I've read Stephen King. It was the car. That's true. It has been the car in the past. So I wonder actually, with the ammonia, what I think it would do is. It would either ruin the DNA so that it's not you can't tell whose blood it is, or gotcha. it may it may muddy up the it may muddy up the results to such a point that they become inconclusive. Like it's it's just useless info. So it just affects the results. Doesn't necessarily make it worthless, as he said, but it really complicates things a lot. Exactly. Like I think they'd still be able to tell that there was blood there, but they're already there investigating, right? They probably figured there's gonna be some blood. I think at that point you're like you know what I mean? I think I think at that point oh, you're ammonia, I guess it wasn't a murder. Yeah, I think at that point your biggest <laughs> issue Yeah, right, ammonia was just an ammonia spill, no big deal. Uh, I think at that point your biggest concern is gonna be like, yeah hiding the DNA. You know, that actually reminds me of though, a really interesting thing. My, my wife is a, my wife is a, congratulations. congratulations. Thank you very much. Aw, my wife is a, is a veteran or she's going to be a veterinarian, but she's, you know, really, really smart, really interested in, in biology and all this kind of stuff. And so one of the cool things that she told me that I should mention on this is one thing that they don't, one thing that, people that commit crimes don't usually do like serial killers after they murder someone. A lot of the times what they'll do is they'll actually go to the fridge to have like a snack afterwards. Cause I guess serial murder is thirsty work. So like they'll go to pop open a beer or like get an orange juice or whatever. Right. And so what they won't actually check for or what they won't think to clean because it's not part of their MO, right? It's not part of their, like it's not part of the scene for them. The scene for them in their mind, and we're gonna get into all this later on too. Not to not to spoiler alert or anything, but in their mind, like the scene is where the crime was committed, not the surrounding house, right? So maybe right. in their in their brain, they're thinking this has to happen in a bedroom at this time of night, whatever. With so the candlestick, right? Exa- well, yeah, exactly, right. Whatever their whatever their modus operandi is, whatever. And so when they come out to the kitchen to get a snack or something, they won't think to clean off the, uh, the fridge handle. Seriously? Like the yeah. door handle? Really? Yeah. If you're, if you're or, or an even like serial killer though, I mean, you know, there's an organized, disorganized type. Aren't you going to pack your own snacks? Oh, Marie, Aren't we're going to pack your own snacks. Marie, we're well, going to get- how they, 
Marie, we're going to get into all oh, of yeah. that. All right. That's how they corroborate some of uh, Dennis Rader, uh, the BTK killer. Yeah. That's how they corroborate some of the stuff is that he used to at, uh, make like a serial yeah, at some of his yeah, crime yeah. scenes yeah, like because he was a serial yeah. killer. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, they eventually Kill found me. some of the fingerprints on some of the util- uh, the uh, what's it called the kitchenware. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like they'll find it on, you know, the orange juice bottle or the sandwich well, meat thing or whatever. It seems hilarious that it would be something that simple, but that's the kind of things that you have to, you know, you see these shows where people are, you know, let's say, okay, I sprayed it down with ammonia. They're never going to find the blood. There's all kinds of evidence you leave behind. <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of crap you need to clean. So that's why you smear the walls. <laughs> right. That's it's, it just, oh, yeah, it's no, so he, crazy. They use that in red dragon too. It's so it's so intense. Didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's mm-hmm. where I remembered it from. Oh right! In yes. red, oh the eyeballs. No, no, no. He, well, he, the eyeballs. The yes. cheese in the red dragon or whatever it was, and put it back, and that's how oh, they. Could, yeah. That's how they knew it was a uh, dentures. Right, right. I'm thinking. Oh, I'm wow. thinking of the. He puts the mirror in their eyeballs, and so he like he pushes it, and he they're they're like <laughs> that's an after effect. He wouldn't Second think. Stuff is right it. on. Man, I love that book. Such a good book. Anyways, that's it for blood splatter analysis. That's all we got. All right, now moving on to the next topic. Josh, I believe you have something very near and dear to most crime shows' hearts. Yeah, this is probably the number one TV trope that you'll see in most places nowadays, um, and that is polygraphs, uh, also known as lie detectors, but I'm going to get a lot of shit for saying that because there is a lot of debate of calling it a polygraph versus a lie detector. I'm going to reserve anything I'm going to say. I'm going to let you get deeper in there. Okay, so... A polygraph measures several physiological indices like of, of a person, like their blood pressure or heart rate, respiration, and skin uh, conductivity. And this is all measured while someone is being asked a series of yes or no questions. Now, blood pressure and your heart rate is measured like you're having your typical blood pressure taken. You know, the little thing they wrap around your arm and they pump it up and they see, you know, you get 120 over 80, you know, yada, yada, yada. Respiration is measured by pneumographs. I believe I'm saying that right. Pneumographs, pneumographs, and that's what they actually wrap around your chest. Um, I've seen that being done before. I don't know if that's a very common thing. Though. So, is it by like how fast your chest compresses and decompresses, or is it how wide? I think I think it's how wide. Okay. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm, I'm I'm pretty positive it's by how wide because how fast is your your breathing mm. rate, which is then your heart rate. Okay, so that'd be just kind of a, almost redundant. Right. And skin conductivity, the last one, it's measured by those little things that they place on your fingers. So that's what the three different needles are for yes. on the actual like yes. polygraph? Okay, I exactly. never knew why they were three. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because I, I said the same thing. I was like, oh, that's what they're doing. Okay. <laughs> so um, <laughs> and just from the get-go, thinking about that, it's like going by those three things, I assume you have to get like a match of those like all spiking? I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. okay, so just a brief history of polygraphs. Oh, good. Um, I didn't go into like a super amount of detail because I could be here all day talking about it. But the, the, there's one main thing that I really find interesting about this, and that the polygraph was invented in 1921 by John Augustus Larson. Huh? Yeah. I saw something different. You're talking about um, Martin? Uh, William Mouton Marston. He improved it, and he was a comic book author. 
Yeah, Wonder Woman. He invented Wonder Woman as well. Yeah. Lasso of Truth. He polygraph. Yeah. He so like polygraphs were evolved and things like that. He improved on it. Oh, it was his moonlighting job. Well, (laughs) to get him through the comic book industry. Talk about moonlighting real quick, though. That's funny because Larson, the guy who invented the polygraph, was a med student, but he was also um, a police officer. What? (laughs) Isn't that kind of fitting? Why a polygraph was invented? Jesus Christ! You know the guy that the guy that invented Wonder Woman. Moonlight, moonlit as a pervert. Also, by the way, <laughs> what? <laughs> also, all of the original. So, evidently, I'm not going to throw any shade here. If his if his relatives are listening, I don't. Um, I have not searched this before this episode. But as far as I have been told, and as far as I remember. <laughs> A lot hey, Chris, of Chris, I'll relieve you from this. He's not throwing shade, but guys, fuck your ancestor. Yeah, whatever. Go ahead, Chris. So uh, originally, like all of the original Wonder Woman comic covers are all like her roped up in like S and M poses and stuff. Nice. And, she, oh, and she's like, shot. and she's like, oh no, how am I going to get out of this sexy situation? And so he like, um, he was evidently super into like S and M and stuff in the BDSM community when he was alive, and so. A lot of, but also a cop. So the handcuffs came pre-installed with him. I, no, that was my guy. No, no, no. Yeah, cop. this is the guy that invented Wonder Woman. And so, like, yeah, Wonder Woman Marston. originally was like, yeah, was a pretty strange. And that's kind how of you thing. sell comics. Well, if you think about it, though, <laughs> how many people that were reading comics could actually read back then? That's a legit question because comics weren't made for the story back then. They weren't made for the in-depth character. That, it was made for which panels would get people yeah. to buy that little bit off the uh, newspaper stand. That's true. Yeah, thank but, God uh, they don't yeah, have exploitive, sexy women in comics now. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Shut uh, up, Marie. Damn it. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's so ridiculous. I mean, anyways, okay, we're getting off topic here. But yes, it's an interesting Just thing. Fix it with more sexy men. That's all we got to do. Even the tables right there. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to get into how a polygraph procedure actually works. And this is kind of similar as to what you were asking, Ryan, is like those three needles and how they move and like what you compare them to. We'll get to that. So the session begins with a couple what they call pre-test questions. Very simple things like, um, is your name Barack Obama? Are you the 43rd? Uh, yes, I was the 44th president. 44th of the president. Yeah. Are you from Kenya? Let me know. be clear. I am the 44th president of the United States. <laughs> um, you know, whatever. Like, is that they, how he like, files his taxes? <laughs> <laughs> you could be attorney general wait, wait, wait. pretty soon if you really have serious intent about it, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought one of the things about, I'm going to get. I'm I'm walking. I thought back. about <laughs> walking back. I, well, I thought about being president. Is one of the things you'd have to pay taxes. That's true. I thought that was one of the like you know the incentives. So the tax forms don't change at all. No, exactly. Okay. Um, so, but these answers that you give for the, these like very baseline questions that they know is um, with the air quotes absolute truths. Those are what they use to um, compare the results of the different questions to ask you later on down the line. So there's, there's questions that they, they're called as relevant questions. The relevant questions pertain to what you're being questioned on or why you were brought in, like the murder or the disappearance or, you know, whatever it may be. So now we're going to get into the results a little bit, though. How rela- reliable are these answers that you give? Can you give a false positive and can you lie and get away with it? Or will it stand in a court of law? Like, these are all things that... Um, kind of instantly popped in my mind and um, apparently be uh, appear to be a pretty common thing that people ask as well. 
uh, across different communities and forums and, you know, all throughout the oh, internet. I'm not up on the crime shows as much. Has anybody recently seen a polygraph test being done in one of those crime shows? Oh, yes. are you kidding yes. me? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and not only crime well shows, on my favorite daytime TV show, Maury. Oh, okay. The, the oh, bastion yeah. of justice. That bastion, oh, that bastion of scientific validity. Maury. You are not the father. <laughs> <laughs> He's had serial killers on his show for the record. Ser- Has he really? Yeah. Yes. He's like, wow. he, well, he started out as like a real journalist and then he just became like Wait, paternity I, tests and stuff. I wouldn't say he had uh, Ted Bundy on there at one point. There, no, he didn't. I think there, there was one of the, there, no. was a top, rumors. there was a top tier serial killer that he had on his so show. Shit get started. Not like sitting in the audience or anything like that, but like he went and interviewed that him. That we know of. Yeah. yeah yes. Right. Oh. No, stop it. This is how we get all that stupid. No. This is going to turn into a big game of Clue. Please continue, Josh. <laughs> okay. So this is where we get into that gray area and a huge amount of debate in, within the scientific community, which obviously I know nothing about because I'm not inside the scientific community. Um, <laughs> there is no evidence that any pattern of physiological reactions is unique to deception. So an honest person may be nervous when answering truthfully and a dishonest person may be not anxious. Mm -hmm. So what that basically means is that, yes, it's possible to give a false positive. Yeah. I mean, there's the idea of a sociopath, right? If you truly believe in what you did was right, then I mean, there's no reason for you to feel like you're lying about it. See, you always have to have conviction in everything you're doing. Well, I mean, well, well, the thing thing is, too, though, you could give. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to give a false positive on those, right? So one, one way is, I mean, so for instance, um, I take, I take medication every day that makes it so that I could not take a polygraph. Like it, my results would immediately be off, would be considered non valid because I take medicine for anxiety. Right. So like, because I'm prone to even blood pressure medication, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. 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 Blood blood pressure medication is another one too. It's like, if you take blood pressure medication, a polygraph will not work for you. If you have low blood pressure, generally it will not work for you. There's all kinds of, there's all kinds of different physiological reasons why the, the test doesn't work. But on top of that, this question of like coming up with tests, coming up with questions that are, you know, you, you have to be truthful or not with like the hundred percent of the time you're truthful and it'll show this result every time. That's a ridiculous thing, right? I mean, we all have mm-hmm. the ability to imagine ourselves as someone else or even it, it's a varying degree of lie. Exactly. I mean, yeah. yeah. There's no objective truth. Right. I mean, the, so the lie detector. Right. So why? The, so yeah. why do we assume Marie, you became my favorite person? <laughs> because you said objective truth. Because there is no objective truth. So, uh, Josh, uh, usually I'm the person. one that shits all over Josh, but I feel like Chris and Marie just did it. So I get to be innocent right now. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> So one of my things is that I'm not, I'm not going to get too much into this, but I know that when there are things like lie detector tests and interrogation techniques before things became much more regulated in today's society, um, there were little different things that you could do to pretty much set somebody up. Mm. Well, for one, you could just mm-hmm. false. You could mess up the questions on both sides of the end. Uh, not, both sides of- there's things that you could do before that that will give you a false reading before they even step foot inside the room. Give them a rail. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is one option, but I wasn't even thinking that yeah. one of them would be is to pretty much give them water. Yes. And mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. get their anxiety going because they have to pee. Mm-hmm. So whenever you start asking them their questions, their heart rate's going to increase and things like that. Another thing is that they used to file down one leg of a chair 
So that way you'd be rocking back and forth, and uh, it would make your your nerves unsteady. <laughs> That's relaxing for me. I like that. Yeah, no, okay, I would well, love that. Weird, um, <laughs> but it's things like that that would affect your heart rate, and it and hurts. they would. I mean, you would you would pretty much give a, a false reading no matter what, even if you were one hundred percent innocent. So I was thinking of the opposite way of how to actually falsify it as the um, the defendant. Where when you're given the primary questions, so right, like, oh, yeah, yeah, so pretty much you're given questions like this is your name, blah, blah, blah. And then they tell you to lie, essentially. And what I've heard of like, they do, they they do, they make you lie. They're like, are you, you know, if it's they hold up an ace of spades and they say, tell us this is a three of hearts. Exactly. This is a three of hearts. And then that they that's what they use to gauge you lying. But that's a non-consequential lie where you know you're not going to have it. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. So, so it, when they give you a real lie, it was like, who would you lose your virginity to? And then you start choking up because you know you lied about it to everybody else. Yeah. That one might be one you can actually base it off of. <laughs> she goes to a different school. Yeah. Yeah. She lives so, in Canada, I swear. Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, did you say Canadian? So the setup can ruin it. <laughs> The other, well, so the thing that, another thing, another <laughs> thing that's often, another thing with this is, so it's often used as a intimidation tactic as well. Yes. It's used yes. because like they know that in, I don't, I don't want to step, I don't want to step ahead here, but no, nope, go ahead. Do it. I was going to say, they know that these aren't applicable in most courtrooms. <laughs> I think the yeah so yeah because no, no, go ahead, because go, go they ahead. haven't been shown to be valid in any case where they've been used practically they they know that they can't use it and so they use it as an intimidation tactic so I know in one case where they do use them is in the interview for high government positions like in the FBI they will and make you yes. take a polygraph and so there are cases where they use it as just a measure of your as part of a whole template of things to say, do we believe this person or not? But at the same time, it's, it's mostly used as intimidation. And that's why like, it drives me crazy when they have it on those daytime shows. And it's like, you know, someone's, I don't know, it ruins someone's life or it ruins someone's marriage because they're like, you know, do you think about other women? And then the guy's like, no, <laughs> well, that's a lie. And the wife's like, oh my God. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like what kind of husband are you? These don't mean anything. Yeah. Like, stop it, Maury, please. Dude, if you're Guys, on Maury, there's an excellent percentage chance your life's ruined. <laughs> yeah, I mean things are much. If you've if you've agreed things to bad. if you've things agreed to go on Maury, things are fucked with, up yeah. enough anyways that who cares? But so the the number of lies that I think is kind of high. The number of lies around seventy to ninety percent of polygraphs are liable, depending on who you talk to. That but that's like the common consensus. Seventy to ninety percent, which I think is way too high. That's mm. now okay. So Ryan, when you mentioned earlier about like a different way to go about a polygraph, there's an alternative method that they use in Japan called the guilty knowledge test okay and this is really cool so the person asking the questions knows absolutely nothing about the crime and asks questions that nobody would know if they didn't commit it such as how much money was stolen a hundred dollars five hundred dollars a thousand dollars or things like what kind of gun was used was it a shotgun was it a nine millimeter was it a 45 caliber what was it so i think that that's a very interesting outlook on it but i don't think that that still prevents false positives or lying and getting away with it and things like that. See, I think that is really cool and possibly effective under one condition. The test, the testee does not know the actual test. He doesn't know about it. Yeah. Like you telling me that means that I can automatically like start putting together 
different questions that would make me seem less culpable. Like, so, you, like, the knowledge of the technique. Like, so instead, it's the actual... Okay, okay, okay. It's the actual yeah. defendant asking the I questions gotcha. about that. So if I know about that test, that means I can automatically start putting together some things that would make me seem less, uh, well, dumber about the case, you know? But not only that, I mean, you have to know that something's going to happen if you're getting arrested and brought in. It's not like they just pick you up and throw you in a room and you get strapped up, strapped up to a polygraph. Like, there's different, there's a process that Yeah, but oh, there are dumb criminals that don't know how the, the law techniques work. I mean, the, how, like, you know, criminal prosecution works and, like, what this vetting process is. It's just kind of like uh, they would, it's a really cool technique. I think it's actually awesome because it actually does shine some light, but the person has to be completely, this is almost like a double blind study. It's almost like a, um, like a cold reading, I guess. Well, not only that, there is some kind of influence you could give to someone just by the tone of your voice, whether you know it or not. Well, see, and that you can, well, what, what you just said, the cold reading aspect of it is super valid. And I don't think people realize just how valid it is. If you are, if you are, if you are a good enough interrogator or a good, just a good enough, I don't know, reader of people, I suppose you could get people to agree to things that they would never agree to. Right. And so that brings into (laughs) question this whole other aspect of this, which is the coercion of defendants or the coercion of people who may be uh, associated with a crime or potentially guilty of a crime, but you don't know that yet. Right. We assume that they're right. We assume that they're, innocent until proven guilty right yes so, we all do that um, yeah right no for, that totally happens that's totally not its own fucking myth right um but right the, right right no you're you're so right and the number and the number two thing is you can't say objection your honor until you're in court exactly like any procedure like anything that is brought as evidence has happened beforehand and then has to be thrown out as inadmissible in court in the first place which means that essentially you still get into the jury's mind just by per, like introducing that evidence that can be thrown out. I, I think that's one of the stupidest things ever is when somebody says something, objection, sustained, jury, disregard that statement. You can't erase it from right, their mind. Well, they already heard it. Well, the other, the other thing, too, that I'm actually thinking of is if, if, they, if the people, the proponents of polygraphs think that they are so accurate that they can be used to tell that crimes have been committed or that someone is lying about a certain thing, then is the opposite true? Can you use a polygraph to prove someone's innocence? Right. So here's the thing. We've, we've been through this before. Chris, I'm sure you'd appreciate this. It's so hard in the scientific community to prove a negative. Yes. And that's why yes. nobody's going to tackle that. That's exactly why. There's also never 100% accuracy, too. So Right. And then that's the other thing, is that it's more beneficial for them to prove why you can as opposed to why you can't. One interesting thing that always gets brought up on our show, at least because, again, we're a bunch of big nerds, is Karl Popper's theory on what good science is versus isn't good science. And so I think that his his works, like a collected work of Popper, should be mandatory reading for all undergraduate students going into science. Cause like it is a foundational work in the modern view of how science occurs. Anyways, that's how you get them to hate popper. I know seriously. <laughs> so I'm all, so I'm okay. Let's get off the high horse here for my own sake. So the thing with this idea is that science should not aim to prove something is true. Science should aim to prove that a prevailing notion is false or mistaken in a certain area. And so that way science isn't, I guess the good analogy would be science as it's getting towards the truth is more similar to 
shaving off pieces of wood from a, a carving to get down to yeah. a refined, good final product, as opposed yeah. to building a product from clay, right? Science is more of a, you're chipping away falsehoods to find the truth, as opposed to building the truth up from the ground, right? From nothing. I think it was, I think it was Stan Lee that said something like, you know, if you want to go comics like sculpting, you just, uh, if you want to sculpt an elephant, you take a block of wood and then you carve out everything that isn't an elephant. Right, exactly. And, and that's the same thing yeah. with science, right? You carve out everything that is not scientific, everything that is not true or, or valid or provable by the facts. And so with polygraph tests, what they're trying to do is not prove that this person is the, the polygraph, I think, is a non is a perfect example of a non-scientific test, right? Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to coming at it from the side from the side of the person administering the polygraph. You're trying to find evidence that your hypothesis coming into it is true, that this person is lying. Right. As opposed right. to trying to find evidence that certain statements that they're making are consistent with their their innocence or the the facts of the matter. Right. So it's a little bit of a. It's when it comes down to the actual individual level of a test itself, it always becomes kind of a subtle difference. But I think with the case of the polygraph, what my mind always goes to is that uh, the making a murderer documentary. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When they're when they're interviewing, uh, I forget what is uh, what is the kid's name? Dassey, Brandon, Brandon, Brandon Brandon Dassey. Right. Mm -hmm. If you have someone in a room who is by all accounts not capable of protecting themselves from probing questions from law enforcement. And now you give in this other aspect of it, of a polygraph, the polygraph can only act as a way to hurt the defendant, right? It, it cannot be, it's not actually, you're not using it in such a way as to get to the truth. You're just using it in a way to build your case, to prove your point. Right. Mm -hmm. And so well, that's and that's yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. And so at at its base, it is a non scientific. It is a non valid test. And really with the polygraph, if you I, I guarantee if we if like the group of us bought a polygraph and just were allowed to like screw we've around been talking it, about that. <laughs> well, honestly, like we've Marie and I have talked so much. She um, it's funny. Katie says I want to build like torture rooms or something, but I really want to build a, a, a ghost like a haunted house. Right. Can can the entire Dark Myths uh, collective timeshare polygraph? I'm telling you, I mean, it <laughs> is not a bad idea, honestly. But, you know, like if we if we screwed around with it enough, I bet we could get to the point where we could get people to admit to things that they never did. You know what I mean? It's like it's like, again, we always talk about it's always sunny on our show because I'm a huge fan of that show. It's like when when Danny DeVito is waterboarding D and they come in and they're like, they're like, you know, wow, does waterboarding work? And he's like, you betcha. I got her to admit to things she never even did. Does. You know, like that's that's the basis of this whole idea well, is you're getting people to admit to things that you want them to admit to. Right. Well, that and that's where the that's where the debate comes with a lot of people who get upset when you call it a lie detector instead of a polygraph. Right. That's like that, that's a huge, huge debate between people, especially in like the law, you know, the, the the law enforcement community, because when you especially get in a court of law so much so and, and I'll kind of wrap it up with this. Um Polygraphs are actually banned from being used as evidence in some courts. Inadmissible pretty much now. So there are have even been some instances when even mentioning a polygraph in court has resulted in a mistrial. Hmm. 
Whoa. I was gonna say I so, I don't even know I don't even think that you're allowed to suggest no, a polygraph to the defendant. Nope. Because it's, nope. it's counted and, as intimidation. And, it's like being like, I'm going to give, exactly. you know, I gave you a potion that makes you tell the truth only. You know? the tr- a truth serum. <laughs> yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's exactly it. And so that's, they've, they've had court cases thrown out of just, uh, of, a, of, a, of a lawyer mentioning it. And, um, and the final number is, and this is the last thing I'll leave on. Um, as of right now, polygraphs are only allowed in 26 states and some federal courts. That's over half but the still, states, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, my, but my point being is that it's not across the board, though. It's not every single state that allows it. I mean, and if you want to go with, you know, 26 states, that's, you know, that's still more than half. Look at all the ridiculous laws that are still, you know, intact in, you know, half the states in this country. Listen to Ruler Fly, season three, episode, Greg. <laughs> He doesn't have the answer. <laughs> nice. Good, good segue. Seven? I, was, I, I just wanted to say quick, too. I wonder with those 26 states, how many of them it's still allowed to bring in a polygraph, but they don't do it because they know it would immediately get get torn down by an expert who comes in and says, Actually, like, these are these are bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, uh, I'll, I'll let you jump Season in. This after yeah, um, I would actually be more uh, interested in finding out how many states allow the polygraph and also allow the death penalty. Ah, oh, uh, yeah. I was going to go let more like much less morbid. So, like I said, I have applied to a uh, for once for I've applied to a forensics lab before. And you actually do have to take a polygraph test in order to uh, as part of the application process. It's crazy. Really? <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah. Nice. So you have to do something that's completely inadmissible in court in order to get a job to <laughs> enter things that are admissible <laughs> in court. Did you guys? Did you? Sorry. Go ahead. I was Marie. Say, have you thought maybe it's more of a psychological test? Like they're going to see it if you can bullshit. Oh, oh, absolutely. Or if you protest it. Oh, I can't commit a crime now. I'm going to get beat because they took when when I when I applied, they took my fingerprints. They asked about every tattoo I had. They asked about tons of different, like very personal stuff to the point where, like, you know, I'm in a database now. I'm pretty sure I'm in the FBI database. Like if I ever commit a crime, they got. Oh, me. yeah. That's it. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, like, it's kind of like guaranteeing that. Well, yeah, we're going to like consider his application, but at the same time, we got him pegged in case he tries to use the techniques to, you know, commit a crime. So, <laughs> what uh, did you guys ever see? This is completely off topic. This is not criminal at all. Did you guys ever see that really stupid show that was on? I, it must have been on Fox because there's nothing but really high quality shows on Fox. Um, Fox and Friends? Hey, hey, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Bob's Burgers. Oh, are that's on true. Fox, so they got that's true. Out. And the Simpsons, the Simpsons are on. Oh, God, so good. So, well, the Simpsons were good. Anyways, that's a topic for another type of podcast. The they had this show that was you. It was like you had to tell the truth to your to your loved one or spouse or something. And every oh, time you told the truth, you could get you got closer to a million dollars. You got money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Oh, yeah. It was called Let's Get Divorced. Yeah. And so and one of the questions, <laughs> one of the questions was this guy. It was this it was a husband and wife, a new husband and wife. And one of the questions was like. Because it was the wife asking asking the questions to him, and so the question was, "Do you find my sister attractive, or something?" I remember that, and it like, and I remember all the commercials. It just like cut to the husband's face, and then the wife's face. <laughs> it was like boom, boom. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's yeah, horrible! Like it's just such. It's so. Oh, it's so stupid. The next question was, "Have you met my lawyer?" Right. I hope. Have I you hope met my counsel? <laughs> 
I'm telling you, I hope everyone I'll that plead, got on that show drank loads of beer beforehand so that they'd be they'd be dopey and they'd have to pee really bad. <laughs> I have no idea what that's like. <laughs> no, not once. No, never. Not not even in recording. Uh, so that's it, Josh. Yeah, that's it. So we'll let you move on to. Um, Loyalty royal. Um. Uh, so this is going to be me uh, trying to do a speed round on something that I'm very interested in and had some work in, and that's going to be DNA accuracy, which is now known to be the gold standard in forensic technology. Uh, would everybody generally agree on that? Just from what you've heard? Yeah, absolutely. See, <laughs> si, senor. Yeah. So they say that there's roughly a one in quadrillion chance of a mismatch for DNA tests, which is pretty interesting to say the least. But they are still, you know, a little bit of uh, failings in the process, as is everything else. Now, Chris, I'm going to ask you this one. We talked about this briefly a second ago in the scientific field, literally any field. Has there ever been a 100 percent accuracy of anything? Oh, no, never. You can't. If you have 100 percent accuracy, that means someone in your lab isn't doing their statistics right. <laughs> Somebody's lying. Yeah, yes. Someone's messing or, around. Uh, yes. So. That is something that should be a red flag in the first place. Now, uh, I guess a little primer on DNA is that uh, DNA, as most people know, is like this. uh, It's a collection of amino acids. It's adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine that all connect in a lattice form, kind of like a double helix, which many people have already seen in movies. I think Resident Evil want to think of that because they show that a good bit. Twisted ladder. Yeah, it's like a it's like a, a twisted ladder. And that is mainly focused in the nucleus of any uh, organic cell. And that contains all the coding and information of how this organism should work. So just the way coding works for a computer and so it tells you how software works. That's how DNA works. This is uh, just trying to give the bare bones of it. So uh, in general, though, very little of your uh, whole genome, which is your collection of DNA. You have gnomes? Yeah, yes, your your, oh. your genome, your, oh, genome, your okay. F gnome, your oh. H gnome, your I gnome, all the gnomes, all the big uh, ones, all the good ones. We can go. We can go into the Cyrillic alphabet afterwards. I have the best <laughs> gnomes. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we're only talking about the genome, though. Uh, the genome only has a little bit of DNA that actually codes for most of the uh, the human makeup, and a lot of it is uh, known as. Uh, a lot of it is known as trash DNA, which means that there is no known use for this DNA. Like, it's just kind of there as a filler between the important stuff. It's like the commercials, you know. But where does the loyalty, the royalty, the cocaine quarter piece, the war and peace inside my DNA come in? I'm not qualified to answer that. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so. <laughs> so uh, now that I have a little primer on DNA, this is what people use to actually identify it. And no two humans... Unless your identical twins has the exact same DNA I was structure. About to ask that exact question. You're okay. not an identical twin. I well, that's what I was going to ask. I, I so for those who don't know, I've, we mentioned before, I'm a twin. I'm a fraternal twin now, so I don't know how uh, how similar our DNA would be actually. Yes, uh, you're not liar. And also, little quick side thing: if two identical twins get married and have kids, both couples' uh, offspring yeah, 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 would I've heard be. This actual brother and sister mm-hmm. yeah 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 like not cousins they'd be actual brother and sister since the dna is the exact same noise uh it's just expressed differently. oh wait i have so, i have a weird story quick sorry this just came into my mind because i was okay 
we just got married, right? Me and Katie. But they're not brother and on sister. The, Congratulations. We're not brother and sister, I swear. But on but on our Oh no no no. I was talking about if two sets of identical twins married. Like, like two girl uh, like, identical twins, yeah. two identical identical twins okay. married. Yeah. So yeah. on our marriage license that were on the application for the license, there was a checkbox that said we are related by blood. And then you had to explain what the relationship what? was. That's called a Texas marriage. <laughs> we were like, we saw that and we're just sitting there like, oh, oh, man, I wonder what level. Like, I really wanted to ask the woman at the counter. No, she was really busy and she didn't seem very happy that, you know, she was there a half hour later than they were supposed to close anyways. But we, I really wanted to be like, how closely related could we be and still get married in this state? Like it's Minnesota. I think it's pretty relatively progressive and whatever. And I don't think those marriages happen all that often anyways. But anyways, interesting story. Continue. Or you should have just, you should have just yelled. Goddamn nanny state. <laughs> so, damn it's it. Just by your T's preference. <laughs> damn it. So, uh, so anyway, uh, so really only 10% of most criminal cases use DNA. Most people think that it's like every case has like DNA used to call into it. Whether it be like a Semen. a murder case, a rape case, <laughs> a right. bank robbery, anything you want, an arson, it's all they think the DNA will be involved. But only ten percent of cases, oh, even that. today, are using that, and that shows that, like you know, most juries are not going to get what they're expecting. It's not going to be like the TV type of stuff where you get the DNA analysis, mainly because it's expensive and it takes time. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how the like how DNA is collected and how it is stored and how it's compared, how people can, you know, you can pinpoint somebody as being at this crime scene at this time. Yeah. Semen, right? We keep going to that. Yes. Just, it, it's that just is, semen. Everywhere. That's number one. Yes. Semen everywhere. Okay. But uh, aside from that, generally there actually is a national database. It's called the, uh, the, the national DNA index system. It was created in 1998 and it has about 10 million samples. Oh shit. Oh shit! But at the same time, I mean that's a that's a. I mean I know we relative are a population of, of three hundred million yeah, plus. And, and I mean I get that, but that's still if you don't count all them illegal. And it's so, <laughs> and oh, it sounds Jesus. it sounds like a lot, but a lot of those people that are on that database as well probably have died since then. Just statistically, I was gonna say right. So yeah, it yeah, that's amazing though. So the, 10 million is impressive, <laughs> but when put into the full scope, it's not that impressive. No. That's why you chip your kids, people. But then if you get any closer into the database, we have Minority Report. It's a lose-lose situation, and I'm not going to comment any more on that. But long story short, is the database isn't as impressive as it can be, but also is as infringing on our own rights as it can be. So uh, anyway, uh, so the way people collect DNA uh, from a crime scene is from a varied amount of uh, resources. You have touch DNA which uh, is pretty much what you have is if you have... Um, is that fingerprints? No, fingerprints you can actually use in some cases, but it's anything that somebody touches. You can actually, like, fibers, hairs, anything okay, found so on you. You can use a lot of references for I DNA. I gotcha. Okay, like dead skin cells and things like that. So yeah. you have touch DNA, you have stuff that can be, like, caught under the fingernails of the victim. Right, 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 right. Uh, right. There's a whole bunch of different resources that people can use. But there also is some mixing right there. And to eliminate that, when they collect any DNA, whether it be from, you know, the general scene, like a cigarette left around the house, like Chris said, nobody considers the crime scene around the actual mm. crime. Right, right, right. Where, you know, uh, they, somebody could have been, for some reason, yeah. put tons of criminals smoke a cigarette before they commit the crime. And they find lots of DNA just from cigarettes, butts, like outside of the house or the, the crime scene. Well, I mean, they, they tell you that smoking kills. 
<laughs> well, yes, that cigarette drove him over the line, and he just murdered somebody afterwards. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. So they collected from tons of extraneous things all around the crime scene within at least a hundred meter radius in general, just to like kind of get an idea of it. It's all case by case. How many feet is that? Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> 12 feet. I'm American and I am not subject to answer that. 100, okay? 100 meters is around like, so there's like three feet ish to a meter, like 3.3. Right, right. I, yeah. I figured like So we're talking feet, like yeah. 300 to let's say like 400 Nice feet. conversion. Yeah, yeah it's thanks. Fair enough. A football field each way. So you have touch DNA, which is from the crime scene. Then you get reference uh, elimination, which is stuff taken from like the partners of the victim, like, you know, either sexual or familial partners that may have okay. been in close contact with that person. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the uh, actual DNA from the first responders that they take as well. The people handling really? the actual body yeah. huh. just to be sure. So as to eliminate that. Wow. It's a okay. pretty good process. It makes sure that it eliminates anything that may be extraneous or definitely would be involved with the case. That's why the John A. Ramsey case was terrible because like once they found the 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 dead uh JonBenet Ramsey, <laughs> like, no they let crack. everybody yeah. in there. Uh, <laughs> the dead job the, the, the dead uh, oh crap oh, I worked myself in a corner here oh. what do I say yeah right yeah, like, oh shit where am I gonna go with this one? Oh shit oh shit the personalized they say once they found the dead kid you said the dead, the dead you knew you were like on the on the cliff precipice you were like oh shit what am I gonna do I wish y'all were I wish y'all were here I wish y'all were here because y'all could just see the oh shit <laughs> moment in Ryan's <laughs> eyes like oh what am I going to do? Had a polygraph going on then. That would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they pretty much let like every potential witness just go and cradle the body of the kid. Yeah. yeah. And it just like it's oh, just dead you know, DNA palooza that they couldn't eliminate. It, it, it sucks. The thing is too. Like, that's how it still hasn't been solved. The thing is too with that, with that case I think it was that case in particular one of the forensics one of the forensics experts that they brought in to testify or the head of the lab rather. I don't think she was, uh, you know, so in a case too, that's something, that's something maybe we should mention that people may not realize in a case, the, the person who does the forensics collection, like the person who does the lab analysis will be sometimes the one that actually brings it to the lab, to the, to the courtroom itself to explain it. But at the same time with these relatively oh, really? new, like DNA only became Popular in the courtroom, what, like 1990, maybe yeah. when it started? It was the OJ case. Yeah, yeah I was right, say, with the OJ the, case. The, yeah. And so, yeah. and even in that case, they had to bring in, they brought in, in, in the OJ case, a big thing that helped them on that, helped the defense on that case was their ability to question this new scientific evidence. You know, they had people come in and say, you know, say, well, it's not always accurate and there's contamination and look at this. And we, we found one of the things that they brought up was the the blood, the 
preservative in blood that they will add to blood cap you know when they collect blood from a from yeah a perp, okay yeah, yeah yeah exactly right? yeah i'm about to get to okay that. perfect yeah, exactly but so anyway so in, in uh, the in the john benet someone shooting in the john benet case <laughs> one thing that happened was they actually found in a lot of the samples they found the dna of the person who ran the lab in the in the evidence right I, if i'm remembering correctly like her hair or something had gotten into the hair evidence and so i mean i can only imagine when she was anal you know when when a lab like a lab tech was analyzing and they were like this dna belongs to a 45 year old woman with blonde hair oh my god our boss killed john benet you know like, or john benet was actually a 45 year old woman with blonde right, hair or this and is pulled like, it off very well the, the uh, what's that stupid movie called the orphan or whatever <laughs> Where it's like, yeah. yeah. Oh, geez. Anyways, continue. Sorry. So uh, generally the collection of DNA involves, uh, let's see, it's a pretty straightforward process. And actually this is the same process used for GMOs. So there's collection. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, extract. Full circle. No, it's not full circle. It's just the same thing. It's, it's just, it's very reliable for the most part. So uh, co- there's collection, which means on site. Right. There's extraction, which means a se- uh, several different techniques to eliminate the other DNA that you're not looking for or to remove just that. And it involves different types of buffers, different types of polymerases or um, uh, RNAs, pretty much. that takes out everything except for the DNA. Uh, there's quantification, finding out how much of that original DNA you have in your sample after the extraction. Amplification, which means pretty much, I'm going to get into this more, there's something called PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction. It's the idea of taking the DNA that you have and then using uh, chemical processes to actually copy that DNA over and over and over and over again. So you have a large sample, a larger sample to analyze and give you much more of a reference to work with. So basically what you're saying is like you take a couple Legos and then you take the same Legos and you build them over and over and over again. You subcontract the three-year-old to get those Legos and take the same colors and put them in the exact order mm-hmm. over and over and over and over okay, again. Okay, that's yes, exactly yes, it. Okay. So and then afterwards, uh, after you have the amplification, there's a separation and then there's the analysis Uh, that works in generally any DNA case. Now, I just said, you know, those simple ones, collection, extraction, quantification, amplification, separation, analysis. Those all have their own different ways of doing each of them. Okay. so it's kind of a mix and match policy. But we're going to go ahead and go with the most used techniques uh, right now. So. Generally, what people use in DNA to identify a certain sample uh, beyond another is that there's something in this junk DNA called tandem repeats. And that is just a section of DNA where it's like AC or, oh, sorry, it's, uh, Chris, help me out here. It's AC and TG, right? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. I'm not, I mean, I'm not Chris. <laughs> no, it's AT and CG. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine. Yes. And the, you have these tandem repeats where it's just like a hundred repeats of the same pattern of these connections on the ladder. Mm-hmm. And there can actually be some actual, uh, there's, uh, there's certain spots called Loki, not, not the, uh, marvel god <laughs> but there are some locusts it's a locus it's a certain spot that you can look at in these tandem repeats and look for changes in them because it's different for every person even though it doesn't code for your dna your uh tandem repeats can be different than somebody else's okay so they look at these and there's certain spots and differences called alleles which just code for yeah, random things right like, and if you look at a chromatograph which is just kind of like the readout of how these uh are right, analyzed right 
if it's like one, it came from the, you got the same allele from both parents. If it's two, they got two different alleles from two different, uh, from two different, different parents. parents. Yes. So that's kind of the way to um, break it down. But there's also partial profiles where if it's damaged DNA, you can only get a little bit each. But it's generally looking at these short tandem repeats that are very reliable and staying the same without mutation because they don't actually code for anything and comparing them to the witness or the database just from these little sections. So let me let me ask you this then. Wouldn't the mitochondria come into play here? Midichlorians? Yeah, no, no, <laughs> like the, the powerhouse of the cell. The powerhouse of the cell? Yes. Wouldn't no. that have something to do with any of this? Uh, no. We're going to get to the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. Yes. Thank you very much for bringing in the midichlorians. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I don't know. That's all. I, that's literally all I remember from biology. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> so actually, they uh, were able to find the skeletal remains, supposedly, of Joseph Mengele using this DNA oh, analysis yeah. in the short tandem. That's one of the cool situations. And I, I, have you covered that, Chris, or anything like that? No, we haven't done any. We, we've, we haven't delved too hard into Nazis yet, but we will. Oh, but we will. Joseph Mengele, one of one of That's the most sweet, sweet. famous people involved with early genetics, and not in the good way either. No, That's one way he put it. <laughs> it, it wasn't. Uh, he wasn't way. a pioneer. No. Yeah, but he was um, not a nice person. Now we're going to get into the techniques and the pros and cons of all these different uh, techniques for actually analyzing this DNA. Hold up. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> He's just saying some fucked up things. <laughs> I said he was the Columbus of DNA. <laughs> oh, Columbus is pretty terrible no. in general. <laughs> no, no, oh, no, no. So now we're going to get into techniques of analyzing this DNA. The ones that are general, there's, there have been tons across the years, but we're going to go into the ones that are still used today. And uh, these techniques are mainly from the analysis side of it and uh, kind of from we're going to go away from the collection. We're just going to get to the separation, amplification, extraction. Gotcha. Type of deal. I got you. So the one that I worked with and the one that's pretty common and most accepted is called PCR. It's polymerase chain reaction. And this is kind of like an umbrella term for a lot of the other ones that I'm going to cover. And generally what that does is it uses something like relatively small segments of DNA can be used for this. Uh, so small chains, and it used something called tack polymerase that uh, kind of cuts out the unnecessary parts and is trained to find and mark these small segments that you compare. So uh, it finds only the small segment in the human DNA and then just completely copies it over and over and over and over again so into it, a chain. It focuses on a very like minute small point, is what you're telling well, because- me? Yeah, it's like scrapbooking. It takes like a snippet of your DNA. Right out and then it just continuously copies it so it can be analyzed much more closely yeah right. because again because again like 98 yeah. percent of our dna or something is shared with chimpanzees so like we're only looking and bananas and right right Sweet exactly bananas. like we're, we're only looking for and that's that junk dna that we were talking about we're only looking for specific markers that have been, that have been found to be useful and which we can actually point out chemically. We're only looking for a small segment of the DNA really. Cause otherwise every crime that the, the defendant could be like, it wasn't me. It was Mr. Bananas, the chimp, you know? So God damn right. chimp. So yeah. God damn <laughs> chimp with his, with his overall dirty arms. Yeah, it's just blame it on Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, hey, so, hey, hey, don't talk shit about Caesar. I just saw the, the last three Planet of the Apes movies. They were all fantastic. Caesar's a good guy. I haven't seen a single one yet. But um, anyway, so getting back to it, 
So you have the tag polymerase that can actually like chop up the DNA segments, and then you have these primers that can mark it just to make sure that it's the right one, and then uh, completely clone it continuously, and you compare it to another sample done the same way. So it is pretty reliable. You can use this to find either what protein it expresses, like that's what we did for GMOs, or just in general using trash DNA to see what little tiny differences there are. Mm-hmm. And it's a way more of less than confirming than eliminating a suspect. Right. Like, it's mainly used to say, oh, this person doesn't match at all, so this person cannot be involved in it. Like, it's kind of just like, even saying from, like, uh, let's go with XY chromosomes, you can see that the DNA had uh, two Xs, so all males are completely absolved of this one because it was a... Uh, a female that was the perp or vice versa you know same deal it's more of an elimination process than a confirmation process which uh, in tv shows they kind of paint it the other way i was gonna say most tv shows and most tropes that you see is kind of the other way yes now with pcr the cons of it even though it's very reliable for the most part is that these primers cannot proofread which means that they can accidentally cut the wrong segment and then throw everything off Mm -hmm. Also, uh, the, the TAC polymerase can do the same thing. Cut the wrong segment, mark the wrong thing, and then you can have an issue with the actual DNA evidence, mm-hmm. which, as we'll get to it, has had uh, a repercussion in the past. And one other, one other thing, I don't know if this is, I don't even know if this is really an issue or not, but I'm, I always wonder about cases where there's just been a miss there's just been a mistake in someone's dna they have some mutation that they you know they never knew about because whatever it's not a huge deal you know it doesn't affect they're their chimera. daily life but right well what are you they're a chimera, they're chimera. oh god they're you know uh, what i'm thinking is like <laughs> yeah i don't know something like it whatever some protein in their body is different than everyone else's protein just because of a single switch being wrong. And so now they cannot be actually identified through DNA analysis conclusively. Cause that, that piece, that important piece will just get cut out. Right. Uh, although in common, that is possible. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there are uh, situations like that. Like for instance, there's a whole thing where a person's semen sample comes up again, does not actually nice. display their blood type and can absolve a person. It's happened right. in other cases before. Yes. It's like a one in a million chance. Yeah. But even more common, it could simply be the tester whose DNA got into that batch mm-hmm. instead of the actual perp. Sure. They just sneeze like, on it. There are serious <laughs> contamination issues. No, it's not. It's less than see, it's sneezing. It can be breathing on it. Really? Like the contamination protocols that you have to take just to analyze like a, a a corn sample is ridiculous i can't imagine what it's like in a lab and how those rules can be broken by simple human error uh so but also pcr can also be obstructed by the process itself like hemoglobin if not enough of is uh removed from the actual sample that can interfere with it as chris said before certain techniques for finding like blood splatter analysis if they do the same analysis from the blood that can ruin the sample too. It can just, uh, it can interfere with the actual polymerase chain reaction. So that being said, we'll go into another one, electrophoresis, which is very close to PCR, which is you separate the DNA, but then you do something called chromatography, which you put this in a gel, like the sample, then you shock the shit out of it. And the way it gets shocked is like some of the, uh, negatively charged DNA gets pulled towards the bottom of this plate of gel. Mm -hmm. And then some okay. of it, uh, and depending on how, you know, uh, 
responsive to it is it can separate different segments of DNA and they can do comparisons to other samples. Ba- so okay. basically now this, so, so sorry, I just want to say basically just for people that don't know, because I, I'm sure there are going to be people that listen that don't know this kind of stuff. Um, the way, so that generally works. So if I'm wrong, let me know. But in, in gel electrophoresis, is it the size of the molecule that causes it to flow farther down the gel or is it the charge of it? Uh, several different factors, depending on which types of molecules you're dealing with. But it can generally size does play a factor. And then the actual charge of that cell uh, will actually play a factor into it as well. Okay. So what you're telling me is that some so are more two, negative than others. It's yes. It's okay. two degrees of separation pretty much. Yeah. And that actually helps the situation. But yes, there are certain segments of DNA that are split up and how big they are can move faster through that gel than others. And this is how most analytical chemistry works yeah, is by chromatography. Absolutely. It's just by separating things by their mass and then seeing when they hit a certain detector. Yeah, because uh, yeah, at a certain time. Yeah, because things like basically, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Basically what we do is in all of this in all of this area, but in any time that the say chromatography, what it is is or maybe not chromatography is the right word, but anytime that there's a separation, what we try to do is we try to base things on how, if we supply an impetus to some group of things that are mixed, can we get them to self separate? And so one way to think of it is you have some molecules that are really small and some that are really big. And so the really big ones are very heavy. And so just by the fact that they're heavy, they're going to have a harder time moving or responding right to charge or to gravity or to even just flow. Right. So they'll, they'll, the heavier things will be the ones that stick closer to the starting point and the lighter stuff will get to the bottom. And then if it's charge as well, then the stuff that's the lightest and the stuff that responds the most to charge is going to be the stuff that'll flow quickly, the flow fastest to the bottom of the plate. And so you end up with a really nice separation and based on testing against other, you know, base samples, you can say, okay, this is this piece of DNA. This is this piece. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Chris, can I just say that like, as somebody who for a long time slaved over GCMS and LCMS and several other chromatography methods, I was so happy to just hear you talking about it instead of me to everybody else. It was so refreshing. I loved it. It was beautiful. Aww. Please. It, please. I think I can. It, it really is I think the I can basis. Sum this up, uh, basically, though. chemistry is like this thing heavier than this thing. How we make it move faster. Like that's chemistry. Yeah, that's exactly. That's yeah. analytical chemistry well, uh, for you in a nutshell. So what you're saying is fat floats. The heavier is the floor sticks to the top. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're telling me. Yeah, Way to put it even more in layman's terms. That's what Josh is here for. That's it what is I do. great. I love it. That's He's what I'm here for, Uncle Rusty. So moving on, electrophoresis <laughs> is relatively reliable for most samples, but the problem is that can only be done one sample at a time, and it is very hard to – and they use, like, cool little lasers to shoot through, like, a little tiny capillary uh, tube for electrophoresis. The only problem is it kind of bottlenecks for how many samples they have to deal with all the time. So it's really hard to use this as a viable, like day to day type of process and getting it done in a reasonable amount of time. So moving on from that one, that's that short uh, shortcoming. We have something very interesting called mitochondrial DNA analysis. Powerhouse of the cell. Yes. Powerhouse of the cell. So as I said earlier, most of the DNA in a person is stored in the nucleus of their cells, but the mitochondria, which is, Josh, powerhouse of the cell, also stores some small <laughs> loops of, of DNA. 
And this is particularly useful for cases like burnt corpses or DNA is so degraded that it can gross. barely be identified. Gross. Yes. Very gross. Uh, so, but for mitochondria, there's about a hundred to a thousand, uh, in each cell, which are these little, uh, strands of DNA and each mitochondria has a thousand base pair non-coding loops, which can have a small segments with high variation. And these are the segments that are used. Once again, the junk DNA in the mitochondria. The big problem with this though, is that it relies on maternal DNA. It is only passed uh... down by the mother of the victim or the perp. So unless you have the maternal DNA as a reference, it is nothing in the case. So you're going to have to talk to your mother, too. Say hi to your mother for me. Say hi. That's from Massachusetts, man. You want to do a good one, Chris? You want to do a good one? I I cannot. (laughs) No matter how long I lived in New England and Massachusetts, I could never get that accent right, man. Fair enough. (laughs) Knock, knock. Knock, knock. So anyway, (laughs) (laughs) the best person who's become famous from beating a Vietnamese man to blindness. So, uh, oh, Jesus. Oh, what? You sad about me talking about Mocky Mock in a bad light? He's an American hero. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. I don't care. Listen, I'll beat you until you can't see. (laughs) It's chowder. So anyway, this mitochondrial DNA, even though it can be very helpful for damage situations, is a very conditional thing where you need the mother's DNA as well to compare to make sure that it is a copy. Mm-hmm. So, okay, question. So what happens if the mother's dead? I'm not trying to be funny, but like, what if she's not around? If they really wanted to solve this case, yes. they'd exhumer. Yeah, yeah, that would that right. would be those cases where that's exhumation my, that's my go-to. becomes... Exhumer. Consumer, <laughs> that's always that a solution. My, it's that really fucking is. digger up. Like, it's like the worst superhero, the Exumer. Yeah, right. <laughs> I hear there's a monster truck that can help us with that. Brave digger. <laughs> so, <laughs> they just get it to tread the tire over the uh, grave long enough to okay, reach the car. Let's go. All let's right, go. Five, five, Keep five, going. Five, whatever. 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 <laughs> that's fine. Um, so uh, the last thing I want to cover is something that's kind of the cutting edge of DNA analysis, which it's. Two categories, but technically one. It's called low copy number analysis, which also is single cell analysis. So it actually uh, PCR, as I've talked about before, taking that small segment and copying it until you have enough to analyze. Those about 28 cycles of this polymerase chain reaction to copy the DNA by a factor of N. But the LCN simply just does it by 34 cycles instead. Now, this higher sensitivity can lead to a larger error or contamination, but it can also help when cases where there is very, very, very little DNA to work with. However, like I said, with the higher sensitivity, higher contamination, if there's one little tiny bit of contamination, it can just give a hundred percent. It'll spiral out of control. Quote, unquote, hundred percent for something that isn't even in there. Right. Like a stalk of corn could have killed this person instead of, you know. Uh, O.J. Simpson. Yeah. So, you know, that is a situation that is to be considered for that. That being said, DNA is still a like a staple in forensics now, which is indispensable. But ultimately, there are still errors that need to be worked out with this because there have not been consensus in everything possible. Just as uh, a case of that uh, for LCN, there was something called R versus Hoey in the UK in 2007 where there was a series of bombings and the handlings for the police commissioner and all the way down the chain of command, which is like you have a sample. Anytime it gets into another hands, they have to sign off that they handled it and pass it off to somebody else. 
they didn't do that well enough, and the case is actually thrown out for this guy that was um, blamed for these bombings because they used the uh, LCN, the low copy number DNA analysis, and they said that, well, anybody could have touched this. And when they sent a... When they sent a letter to the police commissioner in an email, he pretty much said, uh, yeah, uh, who knows how many people handled this sample? Oh, that's uh, stupid. Yes. <laughs> so that admission actually banned LCN analysis for a whole month in the UK. It eventually got reintroduced in a case, but this guy got off on it. Like he was not convicted because of how not badly it was, but how potentially badly this case was handled. Like the, all this evidence. So there are a lot of problems with DNA and also just people walking all around the crime scene like you see in the shows. It's handled a little bit more delicately. Mm. So I'll just say DNA is still good, but the amount of work, dedication, education, training, and just general good procedure that you need to implement for it to actually be admissible in court is astounding. So that's what I'm going to leave on that with that pulpit. So, I mean, well, the good thing is, is that there's a reason they have all that police line do not cross tape everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That everybody crosses just as for long Halloween as you have parties. something that looks like a press pass. <laughs> right. I'm just going to duck underneath it real quick. No one's going to fucking notice. Yeah. So that's me on that one. Uh, any questions from anyone? No. <laughs> Please no. Please no. I have a no. question. I have a question. No? It's, sort of a, it's, sort of a okay. it's sort of a leading question, if you will. I don't see your hand up, Marie. Yeah. I, don't see your, uh, I don't see your hand no, up. No, no. It's up there. Yes. Okay. Um, so okay, DNA, okay. gold standard. When is DNA completely ineffectual? DNA test? Uh, completely Your ineffective. DNA uh, casework test, when is it completely not, not valid or not used? Com- uh, completely not valid? Well, if it was an ancient crime, which was thousands of years ago, that is one mm-hmm. situation. But also so badly damaged by something that would uh, actually destroy the amino acids or at least completely lice them. Uh, I don't know what type of polymerase would be there, but something that completely tears apart the DNA structure in a situation like that. I'm kind of an asshole. I'm sorry. It was a leading question. That's fine. That's fine. There's leading questions. When it's completely backlogged. So, so, you could have human soup if somebody actually does yeah. decide to go the hydrofluoric acid Which route. Which is awesome. Or you could have human soup where somebody dies in a bathtub and just turns into, Mush. well, soup. naturally pulled pork yeah. type of human. Yeah. Why, so, well, I think, I, think, I think what, Marie, you're getting at is the idea that, like, okay, a crime is committed and you, it's, it's such a, maybe there is DNA evidence available. But well, the crime is of such they they no, think no, no. what I'm, what they, I'm getting you know, at is they'd actually take the test and the test sits in a laboratory because it's backlogged. Oh, like how, 2009, how long? 2009 oh, okay, put out a okay. guess how many unprocessed DNA tests there were nationally. Oh, yeah. They had like a whole like warehouse of rape kits that they just didn't care about. I, I don't know if I want to know how many. Yeah, I don't know. 300,000. <laughs> like. Holy shit. So, and then guess, yeah, yeah, I call that a warehouse guess, worth. You know, like it's around 300,000 with a growing estimate of over 50,000 a year. So, not only I new take cases, but like almost like 100,000. So, like a third old cases that they can't even catch up with. Like I said, well, I was yeah. going to say too. Time and, I, time and no, human yeah, error. No, I know. It's like, it's, and it's like there's so many different contributing factors to that right it's like it's you're right it's the gold standard it's probably there's an economic fast way to do it and to get the test done but federal funding and 
people training and training qualified people on a consistent basis has been such a challenge that that's one of the reasons that they are just like, well, that they're getting back. They're getting, you know, just again, stored in, in boxes. Yeah. So actually I was going to say, I was going to say two things. First off, I actually wonder how, what is the shelf life of DNA? How long can uh, she- well they they actually um I was looking in one of the stories that I was looking at, like they cleared Kentucky did a big drive on it and cleared like over three thousand different kits and had hits going back. Uh, we'll get fact checker Greg. Fact-checker on Greg. This. Um fact- it was it was recent DNA. and it was like they cleared um over three thousand rape kits and had like something like forty hits. Of pre-existing, wow. you know, pre-existing sexual offenders that were already, you know, incarcerated, that they were actually able to to add uh, to right. add time to the sentence or whatever it was. So, well, I'm I'm even I'm even thinking like DNA is a really big molecule. I know it's sensitive to light, right? Um, I wonder if just sitting in sitting in a darkened room versus in a bright room could be enough to just you know damage some of it enough that it becomes inadmissible wow. or something. But the the other quite I, I know that you have UV does the trick for lysing mm-hmm. cells because that was an issue when I was um, dealing with uh, DNA analysis. Yeah, see, so, actually- so that's what I'm thinking. And the, the other the other thing I'm thinking though is what percentage of times do prosecutors they have dna evidence that they could do and then they just don't use it like you Mm -hmm. said because of economics or because of time right they're so sure that they can get to uh, a conviction that they don't even worry about it but one one thing that's become really really big in the field of microfluidics right now is creating cheap simple tools for things like blood analysis to tell if you have for instance a genetic disorder or to tell if you're pregnant or to tell if you're so I'm actually thinking, you know, in a, I'm actually, I would not be surprised if in 20 years we're not, we're no longer talking about crime labs where these things are actually analyzed, except for very big cases where it's really, really important. Instead, we're doing it like they do at the scene, um, at the scene, like drug tests, right? Where they stick the thing in and they shake it and they see if it turns purple or whatever. I wouldn't be surprised if we're at, at some point, we're able to pinpoint at the same level of you have an an on the field thing. You take out a small test kit that you give to all cops. You give them like 20 a night or something. They check the blood and they can see, OK, it's a male or a female perp. Um, they're likely this age or this age based on telomeres. They're right. Like, yeah. right. I wonder how I wonder how long it'll take for that to get to. But again, like you said, yeah. that starts to get into some like scary science fiction shit. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And the, ch- the chain of command to yeah. that to the point of like how accurate is that? But I mean, if you look at like consumer based tests now, like you go out, you can get a DNA test. You can, you know, you can find out all of this stuff and it costs you a couple hundred bucks. And there is something sort of, did you know? Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on, Marie. Did you know (laughs) that when you take that DNA test, your DNA gets put onto a database? Fucking big brother. Okay. That is actually helping out with the record keeping. Yeah. And finding that that's percentages of the population and stuff like that. That's not minority report stuff or oh, big no. brother. No, no, no. I, I, I'm no, no, gonna yeah, give that one a yeah, pass. No, 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 no. I know. I'm I'm completely with you. It's getting a baseline level uh-huh. of sure. right, but still Great, you got the number. Yeah. Uh, quick quick little interruption. Um for the what I'm my cursory searching is that it seems that the tests themselves, just the kit 
is only good for four years, and the sample, once taken, is good for about three months. I need to look more into it, but I found two or three sources that say three months. Wow. So there's a lot of convictions that can be overturned very easily, whether they were, um, well, actually just cases that can be thrown out with that evidence. I mean, actually, it's not like a very long window, because the test, the kit... Is only good for four years. So I'm saying oh, yeah. the, the actual sample once taken. You Remember know, how right. I said 30 to 60 days for a, for a nonviolent crime? Right, right. Well, I don't know if rape counts as a nonviolent crime, though. No. Yeah, I would, no, wonder, I yeah, I would wonder if that gets pushed up to the top of the list. Although, based on history... They weren't murdered. Based but, on yeah, history of criminality and stuff, it probably is, like, the last thing they check for. So, like... Yeah, I wonder. That's interesting. That's crazy. Three months is not a lot of time. Oh. At all. No, no, so and that's, that's the thing scarier. that's so sad. Is it is? It's the gold standard. It should be used, and it should be there. Should be standard timing around it, and it should be very well government funded. Like it shouldn't be something that is backlogged. But yeah. that's hmm. yeah, and not to mention training yes. and qualifying oh, yeah. people for it. Yeah, so. absolutely. Anyways. so uh, that's my bit on DNA, pretty much. But uh, you guys have another topic before we wrap things up. We have a very meaty topic. All right. So one aspect of men- one aspect of these myths that come up in forensic psychology a lot. So I really love true crime. That's like one of my favorite one of my favorite types of movie and book and everything. Right. And yeah, so I bet it's nice that you like when people get killed in real life, Chris. Right. Real <laughs> shut, enjoyable. Just shut up, okay? By by the way, Marie is Marie is uh, Marie had to dip out here. Her lawyer suggested that this was maybe a little bit too close to home for her. So uh, so Marie is now Marie is now at a, at a safe house. So that's fine. But um, all right. So this this is one aspect though that I find really fascinating. And so we just recently did an episode on this this whole month is going to be for us a series on myths about mental health and kind of like the stigma and the problems that surround mental health care in America. Cause I think Ooh, forward me your email. Yeah, I, I, I am so excited for this. You have no idea. So we have, so we, we just did our first episode was on our first episode was an interview with uh, Steve, uh, Steve Pappas from the, is this adulting podcast, which yeah, they, their okay, whole show cool. is on kind of their, their struggles with, with their own mental health challenges and things. And so one, one aspect of, of forensics that I find really fascinating is forensic psychology and the way that forensic psychology is put out there in the modern, you know, in the modern like soup, I guess you'd say is really funny. And it's so interesting how incorrectly it's portrayed to the point where there are, there's a a known phenomena called the CSI effect, which makes people in courtrooms actually think that the, the prosecution is bumbling or incorrect or failing because they're not able to get to the level of precision that they would get on CSI. Right. Only if there was a show that like involves delving into the minds of criminals and, you know, (laughs) convicting them based on that. Well, uh, uh, so I guess Chris, this would be a good jumping off point real quick is the way I've understood it. And it's not a way that a lot of people think about it is that when you're in a court of law, you're not when when you are the prosecution, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person in question committed the crime. And as the defense, your job is to not prove that your client didn't do it. It's to prove 
that your client may not be the only person capable of doing it. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, and so this is where at times, so probably, so first off a little bit of background, forensic psychology really started as a field actually during the hunt for Jack the Ripper where wow okay yeah cool. so it's it's a very old well, it's actually cool, a very but... it's actually older than blood splatter analysis and uh, some of the other things that we've talked about here already right and so the and what they did originally with this was they tried to discern things about the killer based on the average traits of others who committed similar crimes Okay. All that physiognomy stuff that was going on. Yes. Yeah, it's exactly. It's so it's, so it's kind of interesting that it's, it's built around a lot of these ideas that we today would consider to be pretty distasteful. This idea that, you know, certain, certain genetics, certain genes are more prone to criminality than others. Or, you know, a lot of famous photographs from the era. It's all these physiognomy studies. I remember in my, of a history of photography course going through that and like this really strange application of photography in that field. Yeah. So things like if you had a certain shaped forehead yeah, or, or a certain size of brow or a nose or whatever, they would think, Oh, you're, this is what, what they call it, Like the rapist's, the rapist's nose or the arsonist's the chin part of the brain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it really started with those kind of ideas where can we use science to predict who not only who committed crimes, but who will be likely to commit crimes in the future. Right. Minority report. Exactly. And there's still a very uncomfortable kind of background to this where we, we kind of do the same thing, right? We think, you know, because because killers have been in the past, say, you know, maybe there have been some famous cases where they they use the insanity defense to try to get out of being culpable for their crimes. We now tend to think that all all people who are dealing with mental health issues must be just like, you know, one bad grocery store trip away from mass murder. Right. And so it's these kind of questions, these kind of issues that make this really fascinating for me. Now, the thing that's always so this is the way that forensic psychology kind of has developed. Originally, like I said, it was trying to use population information and data to predict criminals and predict who would be most likely to commit certain crimes. It then over time has been built up into this idea of looking at. So there's two kinds of forensic psychology profile building methods. Let's say there's the inductive and then there's the the deductive method in the inductive method. What you're trying to do is you're trying to look at okay this crime was committed based on statistics these types of perpetrators are more likely to be this age this uh, economic background have these kind of issues going on with them they're more likely to work in this kind of job right so this is the more scientific <laughs> approach to this actually That's this what is criminal minds does well, it's, it's- Oh, yeah. So exemplified by that. So well, this. So, so Chris, it sounds it sounds very similar to profiling. It is profiling. Well, that's the thing. This is okay. all, so. This is all built up around. So these techniques are used to do things like target ads to you on Facebook, and you know figure out what what uh, what kind of item will will work what kind of packaging will work right what appeals to you exactly it's this is all part of profiling of targeted profiling for for mass media or for consumer products or even for things like you know they have they have 
technology now where they're trying to play around with it, where they can tell based on how long you're in a certain aisle and what your body motion is, how likely you are to try to shoplift. Oh, really? Yeah. So, um, so there are, there are a lot of people playing around with this in kind of interesting, semi dangerous ways that we may not be comfortable with. But anyways, regardless of that, the, this inductive approach is the one that has the most scientific basis for it. This is the approach that really is the most likely to actually work. But again, one, one really interesting, one really interesting argument against this is imagine if you were trying to predict what Babe Ruth's home run hitting average would be based on the average home run hitting average of baseball players in his year, right? Like you couldn't do it because he's, he's an outlier. And in many cases, yeah. these people okay, that commit yeah. murders, they're outliers, right? So, or, or even like say serial murder, they're outliers in this field. They're not acting like the normal rapist right. or they're murderer the, or arsonist or whatever, right? They're the extremes. Exactly. And so it makes it much harder to predict. Now, on the other hand, you have the method that is quite popularized in pop culture, which is deductive reasoning or deductive profiling deductive profiling is you go into a where you go into where a crime has been committed and you try to determine based on the evidence present in the room what is what is likely to be true about the killer or the killers yeah, Sherlock like Holmes. That's I've seen everywhere. Yeah. Sherlock yeah. Holmes, basically. So a Sherlock well, Holmes... Sherlock Holmes gets the pass because that was done in the 1800s. Well, that's... Before yeah. the modern, you know, techniques. Right. Right, I mean, exactly. I understand that, but that's yeah. basically Death what he used. Definitely yeah. did that a good bit, too, though. It did. Now, it did. in some cases, deductive... Actually, deductive profiling can be better than inductive, right? So in those cases where <laughs> you have extremes, right? Because, again, you're looking at the evidence in the room, right? So you're seeing, like... I mean, I don't know if we're like, let's take Red Dragon, for instance, right from from Silence of the Lambs. OK, this person stuck the mirror pieces in their eyes. He's trying to look at himself in the in the body of the, the person that was killed. Right. That would be yeah. a that would be a deductive style uh, reasoning for what the killer might be thinking. But again, people do things for all kinds of weird reasons. You know what I mean? How can you possibly predict even with even with all that inductive stuff on your side, how could you possibly predict deductively or just from, you know, trying to pick apart yourself, what the killer themselves is thinking, right? All right. Show us on the doll exactly where you would put these mirrors. Exactly. Right. No pressure. So even, even to go back to what you were mentioning before, like at a scene of a crime, you know, Oh, the killer must've smoked these marble reds because they were in a high stress situation and they need to calm their nerves. Or it was just Joe Blow walking home from his shift at, you know, working at a, uh, as a cook. High stress situation. Yeah, he had a high stress situation and he wanted to smoke a cigarette and he just threw it away right by the sidewalk where the murder was committed. Right, exactly. Like things like that. Yeah. And so, and so this, a lot of these, so one case where this kind of deductive reasoning, this kind of profile mix completely missed the mark was the DC or Beltway sniper case. Right. Oh, so this yeah. is a quote. This is a quote from the Colorado Technical University blog by William Hewitt, who's a Ph.D. in J.D. and a professor of criminal justice. Quote, the D.C. or Beltway sniper case in 2002 illustrated why armchair profiling is a bad idea. 
The profile authorities had agents searching for a single Caucasian male in his late 30s and either with the military or a right-wing militia group and with a grudge against the government. Then the snipers started leaving tarot cards, the hanged man, as a calling card, accompanied by a taunt, and not a sophisticated one, to, quote, Mr. Policeman, I am God, end quote, or Dear Mr. Policeman, I am God. Sources vary, I guess, on what the sniper actually said. Anyone who's... Excuse me, that was a weird cough. Anyone who's more than a dabbler in tarot knows the hanged man actually signifies sacrifice or introspection, but is in no way connected to death. When combined with other evidence at the scenes, it suggested that there were two offenders and one who sounded juvenile. In fact, there were two offenders. One was a teenager, and both were African American. End quote. And now, swing <clears throat> blue sedan. What was right. that? Blue Caprice, right? The movie? Blue Caprice? Blue sedan. Now, the what's the really, what's yeah, really, what's really, so what's really interesting about this is Sorry. they were, no, no, they were so off, right? And, but we continued to do profiling, right? There, and there are loads of cases like that where they have been completely wrong. So another one where, so other cases where this has been misused are cases of serial murder, right? That we've already kind of talked about a little bit. And so this is from a paper written by Craig Jackson, David Wilson, and Baljit Kaur Rana from the Center for Crime and Justice Studies. These are all professors. So this is kind of a long quote, but I think it's really interesting. So, quote, the methodological concerns about bias in these studies and the relatively small sample sizes in some research should be considered. As criminal profiling has evolved and as the statistical approaches of investigative psychology have become more widespread, some of the early principles adopted by proponents have been modified or outgrown. The main, outdi- uh, the main outdated principles here being the binary notion of offenders belonging to organized or disorganized trait subtypes and that such traits can be predictive of offense mechanisms. Research has shown this to be an outmoded concept of little predictive usefulness. Cantor et al. 2004. It is widely acknowledged that offender traits are not reliably predictive of the crimes they commit, and given that murder may often primarily be an ill-thought-through response to a highly charged emotional situation, it is intuitive that the usefulness of traced-based approaches will be limited. So, basically what they're saying is that these deductive methods are very very inaccurate, right? And they've been shown to be inaccurate. So these guys actually, it was quite interesting. These guys actually at a conference had posited that if someone could give them a case where criminal profiling had been very important or even the deciding factor in finding and convicting a killer, that they would, um, they would fully retract all of their work on this method being inaccurate. And no one was able to come up with anything. So still unretracted. It's still unretracted. In fact, many, many other papers have been published on the inaccuracy of uh, forensic psychology. Yeah. So, so here in general with serial killers, you're dealing with the outliers, period. Yeah, that's what we were saying. Nobody serial kills unless you're an outlier. Exactly. And the thing is, too, that this idea that so the idea that they all have similar the idea that serial killers or serial offenders all have very similar modus operandi or, or very similar like rituals, right? That, that serial killers, if they're so they're this disorganized, organized dichotomy, I guess we should explain a little bit. 
what this idea was, was that serial killers are either organized or they're disorganized. A disorganized killer does not plan when they're going to kill. They do not plan who they're going to kill and they don't have a ritual associated with it. So they just like snap for some reason and they Patrick Bateman. Yeah, exactly. They see red and they just will kill someone for no apparent reason and with with whatever is available to them at the time. Right. So these killers might have, you know, these these killers are the ones that are usually hardest to track because they might use they might strangle someone or then they might beat them. They might, you know, stab them. There's all kinds of different things. So it makes it seem like there may be a good example of that. Yeah, exactly. So it it may seem like there's multiple killers at play when there's really only one, right? An organized killer is one, it was thought at least, is is one who plans their attacks out to recreate some kind of sexual, usually there's a sexual component to it is what the prevailing notion has been, right? So they, they recreate either some trauma or some excitement for them that allows them to feel either sexual thrill or excitement or something. And so their crimes are very, very organized. So this might be, this is kind of the, the case of serial killers that we always see in, in TV and movies, right? These are killers who, okay, I'm looking for a, you know, a blonde man who's 25 years old, who wears glasses. I'm going to kill them in a van. You know what I mean? Like very, very consistent, regular pattern to the crimes and what happens after the crimes. It's right. a situation of process versus product killer, where process there are some people that kill for killing, and there are other people that kill because they want this end result of it, whether it be to recreate this type of, you know, trauma that you were saying, or just um, as an end result. They're not the killing isn't the focus of it, it's the result of the killing. Exactly. Exactly. Now, the problem with this, like like it was just pointed out in that paper is that this is really not super it's not very descriptive right it's it's helpful after the fact but who cares about after the fact you've already caught the person right you're, the 2020 cops yeah you're, you're exactly. shooting an arrow and painting a bullseye around it. exactly like what you should be trying to do is predicting what will occur and in cases where these things have been attempted to be used to predict who the killer will be they're often either extremely wrong or if they are correct it's just kind of you know, it's things like, oh, they were a male in their 30s, right? So, wait, you're not telling me, you're not gonna tell me that Ted Cruz isn't the Zodiac Killer, are you? Okay, I'll be real upset. Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer. Let's just put that okay. out there, okay? That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> all, all I'm saying is that we're not gonna be able to catch him through profiling. <laughs> right? uh, <laughs> That's all I'm saying. He's definitely the Zodiac Killer. Secret messages. His profile, his head looks like Gumby's. No, he's he's very scary. He's a very upsetting man. I actually read a I read a I read a thing in a psychology journal that the reason why people find him to be so upsetting is that he smiles at the wrong time. Not only that, his just like demeanor in general is very off putting. Like the way he he holds himself and like as a normal like like you're just waiting for something. He just looks out of place. He has a constant shark face. It's like, yes. hello, fellow humans. Yeah. I'm breathing with my lungs. <laughs> right. I enjoy yeah. air. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I can't wait to anyway, eat my anyway. next victim. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, so anyways, so there is actually, like I said, so the problem with psychology though, is a, as a general field is that, or not the problem with psychology necessarily, the problem with what psychology is trying to study is that it's very hard to quantify. 
right? It's extremely hard to quantify. And it's even harder when you're looking at serial offenders, right? There aren't that many of them. When we do catch them, they usually kill themselves. Yeah. And if you do catch someone who is committing these violent crimes, a lot of the times they may not know why they've committed them. They may not want to tell you they may, you know, they've lived a life where they have been crafty enough to get away with killing more than one person. Right. So they're going to be quite good at hiding their, what they're really thinking and what they're really doing. So it makes it really hard to actually study them. And so I wonder if part of the problem with this forensic psychology as a field generally is that it is very hard to study the people themselves, right? We're always, we're always coming up with things after the fact, as opposed to coming up with working models to predict, you know, okay, we have this type of crime. These are the kinds of people we should be looking for. Right. Oh, the, the perfect example of that is seven. The movie. Yes. I mean, I know it's, I know it's fiction, but like, that's a really good insight. into I, I believe what you're describing. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so the other one case where there are a few cases where profiling has seemed to be very, very good, right? There are cases like with the Unabomber where they were looking for someone with technical expertise who had a grudge against the government and who was likely living alone, right? And and those three things seem to fit. But again, it's almost like cold reading or, or an astrology chart where those three things on, you know, those might be three things out of 20 things that they put out there. You know what I mean? And we just hit I on. Right. He did. He sent letters to the police, right? So he kind of paved that way for them. If it was a, yeah. a person that wasn't trying to get caught in a certain sense, you know, it's uh, yes. like playing a game. There's no way to profile. Well, that's, that that's, that's no, the other, uh, Ted Kaczynski. Ted Kaczynski. that's the other thing too, is that in cases where the cases where profiling works best are the cases where there is a, a huge amount of evidence already. Right. So the, again, the, the amount of good that it does to add to the case seems to be somewhat negligible. You know what I mean? It's good for telling the story of what happened, but it's not really going to tell you look for this person in this room. Right. Another yeah. case, another case that always comes to mind with this is actually the one that made the insanity, insanity defense become such a hot topic in our psyche, as well as the idea of a serial killer, right? Is John wait, Wayne. Wait, wait. Oh, you said it already. <laughs> <laughs> John Wayne Gacy, right? He's like yeah. the, the perfect serial killer. He's the one that we think of when we think of serial murders, right? This scary clown guy. Textbook Democrat. <clears throat> but <laughs> <laughs> oh boy he was a democrat he, he was, was. A politician. well so here's the thing though right everything about john wayne gacy suggests not a serial killer right he had a family he was active in his community he was well liked by his peers he seemed to be successful in life in his work in everything right all of these things that we would think if you're writing up a profile of a serial killer, you never think, oh, they're going to be, you know, they will have had whatever, like a, a parade in their honor for being the best JC Democrat in, in Illinois. You know what I mean? Also, he made clowns creepy. Like the he whole did. like dress as a clown thing. That wasn't admissible back then because he's the one that made it a thing. Yeah. So like there are these 
there again, it's like after the fact, it's armchair profiling, right? You're like, oh, well, look, is one of the ones I always like is when people say that normal clowns make their makeup rounded to not scare children. I'm always, and then his his makeup was all points, right? Like he used hard triangles and his mouth was like a jack-o'-lantern mouth. And I'm always like, where are you pulling that info out of your ass from? You know what I mean? Like, is that really true? Like, have there have there been that, that many? That sounds very after the fact. It's yeah, like, it's like, it's oh, like now there... that I look back on it, wasn't that weird? Yeah, exactly. Like, have there really been that many serial murder clowns that we can go back and look at their makeup and compare against a statistical, you know, study? Like, there are hashtag so, not all clowns. Hashtag not all clowns. It's so true. So, anyways, with forensic psychology, it it's interesting. On the one hand, you have forensic psychologists, frankly, saying no, what we do is useful. But on the other hand, you have nearly the majority of psychologists saying it it does nothing. And at, at, at its worst, it actually can hurt. It can slow down an investigation because it can you lead you down the wrong path. Exactly. Because you rule out people who are are people like, say, John Wayne Gacy, who from the outside, they seem to be the perfect family man. So on the one hand, you have the forensic psychologists currently working in the field who say this is a useful tool or it will be useful soon. On the other hand, you have, as far as I can tell, the the bulk of the psychology world saying that actually there isn't enough evidence for forensic psychology to be a useful tool. And at its worst, it can actually lead you down the wrong path. It can actually slow down an investigation or make suspects who otherwise may seem to be likely appear unlikely. And so it's these biases that forensic psychology gives not only to the general public, but also to people working in the field that actually might make it worse than worse than helpful. It actually might be slowing down cases. Was that like, uh, Oh, who are the uh, Danny and, um, um, Oh, they had the book about the undoing projects came out all about like undoing these, these biases and these, these reliability we have on our pre our knowledge and these, uh, existing uh, notions and stuff. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, go ahead. I'm going to have a huge diversion if I go down that road. Anyway, good. <laughs> I just like really literally just read the book recently. What you're talking about psychology is this whole idea of like, especially in the last 20 years, 30 years, they've been really deconstructing. Like what is, what are biases and like, how are they affecting our ability to even interpret the data in front of us? Sure. Well, I mean, it's, I think it's an important it's a very important question to ask in this field, especially because it's in cases where we're dealing with, you know, there are real victims here. There's a real person who we're saying has been perpetrating these horrible crimes. And so if there's a way for. If there's a way for us to limit the amount of time it takes to catch these people and also limit the chance that we're going for the wrong person, even for a small period of time, shouldn't we be doing it right? And so I often, I often, again, I come back to John Wayne Gacy, his, his actions outside of his crimes appear to be so normal and average that it makes it very hard to think that this would be the person we're looking for. And so you think you, you have to wonder had he not, you know, the reason that he was ultimately captured was because of a a moment of what appeared to be a disorganized crime, right? If we're going back to that organized, disorganized dichotomy, what eventually made him get captured was a impulsive attack on a kid that he met while he was going out to do a job. 
For right? anybody that's not in the know, John Wayne Gacy was a, an American politician that was convicted of over 30 murders of mainly uh, teenage boys. Yeah. And yes, yeah. just as John Wayne said, Gacy Jr. to be specific. He got caught yes. because he killed a kid that whose family cared about him. Honestly. Basically, yeah. So he had previously been preying on runaways or um so he and the thing is too, he was operating at a time where being being homosexual was considered very taboo. And so he was picking up people at like gay clubs and things and then bringing them home to murder. And because they these were these were gay individuals, no one the police didn't look at for them. Their families weren't looking for them. It's it's all really very sad. You know, you think if this had happened ten years later even that he probably would have been caught. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he would have been caught sooner. So, so it's those cases though, where, and if you, if you look at the history of serial murder, or you look at the vast majority of serial murderers, it's not very easy to pinpoint these statistical things that tell you, you know, one I always hear is that statistically, if you are a rapist, you are more likely to be an arsonist. Really? Right. There's just a, there seems to be a statistical correlation between the two. And a lot of people have made these kind of armchair reasonings for that. They'll say like, oh, well, both are destructive acts or both are acts that, you know, show a passion, a, a fiery passion that they feel can't be controlled or whatever. And it reminds me of in biology, you have just so stories, right? These things where we explain complicated, difficult systems by really simple things, right? So one perfect example of a just so story is thunder is god bowling right mm. that is the that is the penultimate just so story and a lot of the times our use of science in the popular culture comes down to those just so stories right um serial so, killers murder because they are sexually frustrated right like that doesn't tell the whole story right, there's a so lot I, of other stuff going on so i so i kind of a question i guess to kind of like uh to kind of like wrap this up and like kind of put in like a nice little bow on it. Um, how much of this psychology aspect of it revolves around um, like inferences versus facts? Like if you, uh, yeah. if you find, yeah. um, I, like I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, if you find an African-American male, with a gunshot wound with a, a gun next to him. Okay. Um, statistically, most African-American men do not commit suicide. Um, and so it's more likely you can be like, well, he, it wasn't a suicide. It was a murder, you know? And then, you know, how do you go about like, what's the difference between like, Oh no, it was a suicide versus, Oh, maybe we're looking more towards murder because we're just, we're looking at this, like, um, like these facts right here. And we can say, okay, because of a, B and C, we can deduce X, Y, and Z based off of this very, um, blanket kind of term kind of thing. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I absolutely understand what you're saying. The thing is what ma what will determine that I suppose is whether or not you consider a causal relationship to be a predictive relationship, right? What's yeah. I, I can't believe I'm blanking on this, like very famous saying on statistics, but causation is not mean bam, causation. bam. There we go. Correlation is not causation, right? So just because it is the case that arsonists are more likely to also be rapists does not mean that they are rapists because they're arsonists, right? Or that there is right. some, right, right, right. there is some, they, yeah. Uh, yeah. So 
I think that is probably the, the actual fallacy, the trap that people are running into when they use these things, right? What you should, I, I would argue, I'm not, again, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a police officer. I'm not a detective, right? Like, but what I would, what I would think the, just from a, from a scientific point of view, what you should be doing when you're looking at evidence always is look at evidence you can actually verify, right? Right. If there is a case and, 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 and evidence that you can't verify to say, okay, this happened. Therefore, this must be the case evidence where there's a little bit of wiggle room where this happened. Therefore, this is most, this is likely, or even this is the most likely case. You always have to still consider that other aspect. So I, I would think that probably. So that was actually a statistic I had a hard time finding online was how many cases are forensic psychology actually used to convict a person. Right. I think that I, I could not find that statistic anywhere besides to find that fact of these people writing this paper saying, Hey, it's never been useful. If you can show us a case where it's been useful, we'll retract our story. Right. So, I would wonder, or I would think at least, that probably where it's the most useful are in cases where the defendant is trying to say that they are not culpable for their actions, right? So they're trying to to bring out an insanity defense or a defense of they didn't know right from wrong at the moment or whatever, or it's being used in the part of the case where they are just trying to build up the person's psychological profile as it is, right? This is a good person. This is a bad person. This is someone who was violent to their, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <clears throat> yeah. So, so yeah, I think from, from everything I've read, it's not very useful and it's actually probably harmful in many cases. So yeah, yeah I think it's not so great. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's pretty much been, I think what 50, 50 on every topic we've covered. So thus far, so I think so. Um, I, this has been an awesome episode so far. Like, um, it's probably gonna end up being a two-parter. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, I don't know if we're gonna split this up in the future, but we'll. Uh, you guys will know by the time you hear this. But uh, anyway, thank you, Chris, so much for collaborating with. Yeah, us. Yeah, thank you, man. Great. Oh, no worries. Thank you guys for having us on. Um, sorry, Marie was escorted away by her law team. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, no, please. We're using everything we learned to find her now. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I'm more prepared now. Where in the ever. world is Marie Mayhew? And so, yeah. is a good jump off point because aren't y'all going to start exploring some more true crime, right? I was listening to your episodes recently and y'all are looking more into some uh, true crime explorations in the show, right? So, man, this is a good jump off point. This is the perfect jump off point, honestly. I was so stoked. So, we, when I first asked Marie to be on my show, like when it was just my show in the beginning, right? I asked her like, Hey, would you want to come on with me? And I mean, she was like, yeah, absolutely. And we started thinking about stories that we could tell in, in interesting ways that we thought other places weren't telling those stories. Right. And so the first one we started on is going to actually end up being a full episode soon, I hope. Um, but one area that we both were like, you know, it'd be pretty badass if we did is true crime. And I think, I hope that this episode will be, you know, yeah, the jumping off point. And also, like, if you like this episode, I think you're going to like our true crime stuff. Yeah, man. Well, excited to hear it. All right, everyone. Well, that's it for this week's episode, a special crossover between the Mad Scientist podcast and our fellow Dark Myths Collective pod, Rumor Flies. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you're really going to like Rumor Flies. 
It's an awesome show, easily one of my favorites, and one that I think you should really check out. You can find Rumor Flies at stitcher.com slash podcast slash rumor dash flies. You can find them on darkmyths.org. You can find them at rumorfliespodcast.com. You can find them on Facebook, on Twitter, and you can find their links and their information through our website as well. And of course, you can find them on Apple Podcasts and all major podcast apps. Again, that's Rumor Flies, F-L-I-E-S. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back in one week with a full roundtable episode for your listening pleasure. There we go. All right. I just David Bowie. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. All right. So you guys should be able to hear that on that side. Oh, no. I didn't clap. I didn't clap. I didn't clap. I didn't clap. Oh, I didn't clap. All right. Josh, go, go ahead. Go back. No, he's got to clap. Okay. Yeah. Do, 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 do. <laughs> wow. That's way better than what we do. Okay. Phenomenal. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.